on today's show, we are getting to know Leia. But first, promos and pleases. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up, Andre Psyche, and add a little creative inspiration to your social media circle. Listeners, listen up. Get 25% off your order at ShadyRays.com by using the promo code GETTING. Use GETTING when checking out to get 25% off on the best sunglasses around. Shady Rays takes extreme pride in their multi-layered lens technology, which is made for high visibility and strength, making it shatter-resistant. Go get you a pair or two by going to ShadyRays.com, perusing their polarized sunglasses, then using the promo code GETTING when you check out. It'll save you 25% on your order. Please subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod on whatever app you're listening on. Please give a five-star rating. Please take some time to write a review. Please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on social media. Pretty, pretty, please tell someone about the pod. All of your clicking, linking, sharing, rating, reviewing, starring, tagging, and simple old-school speaking about the pod is greatly appreciated. And now... Getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. Leia, thank you so much for turning the proverbial camera around and uh, letting people get to know you, man. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so real quick background. Somebody gives you a shout out for taking amazing pictures and I'm like, hey, who is this person? Click on it. And um, you just seem like you live an amazing life. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder if she'll answer just a random DM. And you so kindly did. Before recording, you're like, hey, yeah, I'd kind of tell everyone else's stories and it'd be a little interesting to focus on me. <laughs> and I thought that was such a cool perspective for a photographer because I wonder how like common that is in the photography circles where you just focus on helping other people get their lives, their image, their message out there. Yeah, well... You know, I really consider myself a storyteller rather than a photographer or videographer. It's the essence of connecting to people and capturing their story that I'm so passionate about. And to the core of that is really human connection and human relations and just a, a inspiration and, a, and a, just the love for hearing stories. So when you reached out, I was like, well, I, I do have some stories to share through my life experiences. So yeah, I was happy to take up the challenge because normally I'm not the one to, you know, if it was up to me, I'd rather hold the camera rather than be in front of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think I would say like most of the photographers or videographers I know are also like that. Like we, we chose this side of the camera <laughs> for a reason, uh, but it's really comes down to the essence of, I just see so much beauty around me. And I'm so inspired to capture that beauty and share that beauty. So yeah, that's kind of why I love telling stories and sharing stories. And yeah. I just watched the Chimps documentary on Netflix. 
and just from internet stalking you um, for the pod, not like beforehand. Um, (laughs) What you said kind of rang true to listening to the director of that documentary where it's like, yeah, we're taking this video, but we're taking video with the intent of telling a story. And I'm super curious for you as a professional, like, do you find yourself like forcing narratives? How do you fall into the flow of just finding the narrative and almost not having like your own preference of, or like where you think something's going, Mm. going, or is that like a weird question? No, totally valid. So I, I do mainly documentary style storytelling. So my main focus is telling farmer stories around regenerative agriculture. I also, you froze. Can you hear me? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Regenerative agriculture. Oh, shoot. I might take the video off just so the connection's better. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, one part of the storytelling I focus on are farmer stories. And then the other part, I also do a series on people's health journeys. And what my truest passion and where this all started, which I'm happy to share my origin story of how I got into this, um, is the stories of indigenous communities and leaders. And yeah, I just feel there's so much. Can you hear me still? Yeah, no, Jim. yeah, okay. definitely. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, there's just so much power in stories and their ability to shift and define culture and shape new norms and new um, ways of doing things and new possibilities, really. So I totally lost frame of the question you asked. Can you repeat the question, please? <laughs> I know. Well, between like network connection issues, it gets it tough, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So the question, it's funny because lost the flow. The question was about the flow and like trying to find or feel the narrative oh. versus like shaping or creating your own Cause you kind of mm-hmm. get to choose when to click. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, if I can just get this, I hope they go there. At least that's how I tell it in my head is like, I would have a hard time over directing or over analyzing mm. where the narrative is going versus just seeing what happens and then like going back and figuring it out. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. So yeah, I feel like my style, cause I love just, witnessing beauty in the real moment like I'm very not like oh please stand here and tilt your head this way like I don't shoot that way I'm just like hey when I'm on a farm for example documenting a farmer story I'm like take me around your farm do some farm work like I want to see you in action as you are in your truest essence Um, and then I find the the moments within that to capture and it just comes so naturally I don't know it's just like the way I view things or see things, I can't even explain. I don't have a process. It's just this like inclination toward this angle or this moment. Um, And so, yeah, I really like to just kind of follow people around or have them be as natural. And I guess my only kind of like secret to that is being and establishing the relationship with them first. So they feel really comfortable so it's a really vulnerable space to have a camera in front of you yeah. for a lot of people. And so if I can kind of break the ice and just connect from a human to human um, connection first and 
and just be genuinely interested in their story and they start to open up. And then as they're just being themselves and not thinking about what they look like or what they're saying, I'm, that's when the sweetness comes and the juice comes in that moment. And they see themselves then in a new light. Like, for example, if I can share a story of uh, one farmer I featured, she, you know, what my favorite part of doing this is sitting with the person uh, after and showing them the video or showing them the photos and seeing their reaction and seeing them look at themselves. Because at the end of the day, all I'm doing is really just holding up a mirror for people to see themselves through maybe like a lens they haven't seen it or my unique lens. And, you know, this one farmer started crying and she's like, wow, I didn't realize how beautiful and powerful I was. Because I really captured her like in her moment, in her her essays pale, like just doing the farming thing that isn't so romantic or so, you know, it's hard work, it's laborious, it's tense that I saw the beauty of her essence, of her strength, of her courage, you know, in that moment. And that's what was displayed through the video. And she saw that and she's like, wow, like I'm really seeing myself for the first time in this way. And to honor people like that is such a gift to just hold up that mirror and reflect back because it's so hard to sometimes see, you know, when we're in the day-to-day of our work or our life to just step back and look at it from a new perspective and see it from a new angle and really just honor the, the beauty that's there that we often just don't see. Yeah. How often do you get to truly step back and see yourself in your like natural environment? in your day to day. Exactly. So I'm doing that. Like I was just talking with, um, I work full-time with Farmers Footprint, which is a nonprofit around regenerative agriculture and sharing farmer stories. And we have an amazing designer and web developer, like absolutely incredible. And we're like, hey, let are you back? <laughs> the universe is against us. I wonder if there's some like corporate conglomerate that's like, you know what? We want the world to end and we don't want, (laughs) we don't want self-sustaining farms and agriculture to succeed. We need monocrops and we need global warming. Zuckerberg owns stock somewhere and like they need it. Um, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) That's, it's, I don't know. It's a way to curse the universe. Um, so yes, I'm back. I'm sorry. Um, you were talking about working full time for farmer's footprint. Yeah. So I work with farmer's footprint and we have an incredible designer web developer, Bjorn, and you know, he creates the most beautiful art out of the photos and the blogs and everything for these farmers. And we're like, you know what, let's share your story and your process in creating. We're doing a rebrand right now. And so like to even turn the lens on him and just show him while he's designing and what's his inspo, he just bought land and starting a garden and, you know, to capture all that, it's just, it's such a beautiful way to honor someone and also just step back and reflection for your own life and, and just view it from someone else's perspective, you know? So yeah, I really love documenting all people, all things, um, and share that. So this term parallax, I don't know if you're familiar, but it's a term in physics that basically means where you stand in space and time determines the way you interpret reality. So like if I'm holding up, um, 
I don't know, like my iPhone and you see the front screen and I see the back and we're looking at the same thing and you're like, oh yeah, it's like the black screen. I'm like, no, that's not true. I see the the label and there's no screen on, you know, on the back. We're, we're both right. It's just the truth is different because we're looking at it from different perspectives. Mm. And so I think video and storytelling has that perspective to step back and show a different angle or a different lens on something that we maybe are conditioned to believe or are just don't take the time to, you know, like reflect on it. So, yeah. Yeah. Or even not in the space to understand it. Right. So like as a teacher, it's funny, we were talking, um, I don't know if it's funny, I guess you just say that when you like transition, but we're, <laughs> we're talking, uh, have a unit about um civil rights and the s the skill behind it is like arguing and persuasion and how do you persuade so we're analyzing a uh, martin luther king's i have a dream speech and the kids it, the video zoomed in on his face and it looks a little crowded but you don't get the concept of how much space was taken up by people and mm. then you, they zoom out and you just see that, and I forget what it's called in Washington, wherever that pool is, the monument walk. And it's like, you have 25 kids and we live two and a half hours from there. Hey guys, raise your hands. Have you ever been to the you know, Lincoln Memorial? And one out of 25 kids had. So like they never walk there to understand how many people it would take to make it look that way. And mm. for some reason, even this morning, I was like, I take that for granted that I've been there and I, I have that perspective and I have that understanding. So when you talk about this and you talk about documenting different aspects of life, it's like just bringing knowledge to people that may have never had the ability to go, I don't enjoy it, experience it. Like it's kind of, a lot of people can take farming for granted, it seems, because a mm -hmm. lot of people never get out into country and get out into open space. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's a fine line, too. It's something like farming because you don't want to glorify something too, or, or romanticize it. You want to show the reality and the roughness and the rawness, but you want to make it beautiful. So it touches people and it resonates. So that's always the line I'm walking to of like how to bring in the this kind of like, yeah, I guess rawness or truth and but but do wrap it in beauty or some sense of you know, make it compelling and, and interesting and relatable to people. Because you can also, like, especially now with AI and all this, you can, like, you can get any message out there. And, yeah, it's a pretty wild, wild word world we're stepping into with all the Photoshopping and AI, you know, stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting. How do you start caring about this? Like, I did, full honesty, like, I don't care at all about farming. I hate it. I'm like, it's such hard work. It's like, you're so weather dependent. I live in the country. I'm like these tractors, the amount of, I don't like initial cost. I don't even know how you'd be able to buy a $500,000 combine and sell wheat that, you know, like, I'm like, I, whatever I buy crops. I'm like, I don't understand how they make a profit. So I'm curious. Yeah, how, I don't really. <laughs> right? Um, how'd you, how did this become a passion of yours? Yeah, it definitely, the seed was sparked in college. Um, I went to a really amazing alternative university called Soka University, S-O-K-A. And 
we the premise of the school it's soca means to create value and the mission of the university is to foster a steady stream of global citizens committed to living a contributive life so like the the education pedagogy it, it stems from it's inspired by some buddhist philosophy and principles but it's not a religious school but anyways there i had the opportunity to really like start to understand the more complexities and nuances in the world we live in and the interconnectedness of different systems and uh they had amazing research opportunities so i got to go to Guatemala and study the impacts of mining and deforestation on local communities. Like not just read about it in a book, but actually interview the miners, interview the community members, interview the church and get a really like holistic understanding of of these issues and their impact on people and place and culture. Um and then my first trip was actually in Costa Rica where we were my friends and I got this grant to make a film on social sustainability. and the first week i spent at a permaculture farm and my sister was the one who actually recommended it i knew nothing about permaculture but i was like yeah like i'm open sounds cool i i love food i care about food so let me learn about this farming practice and so that trip like i now can realize how impactful that was we spent a week on this farm and just learning Uh, about all the plants and all the medicinal properties and how that farm is regenerating that land and working with and with the community and um just so many beautiful impacts it had from just providing food and yeah kind of throughout that like that trip really sparked my interest in sustainability in general so throughout my college my focus was environmental studies although i got a liberal arts degree Um and I just kind of kept exploring these different aspects of sustainability and I really owe it I think to my grandma <laughs> that maybe being you know spending time with her growing up she's in Slovenia my mom's Slovenian my dad's Croatian so I grew up kind of cross cultural uh between all those cultures and places which really grounded me in an essence of of the like the value and the important things in life like sitting around a table and eating food together like a home cooked meal from like good quality local you know uh produce and yeah i think those things now i can look back and the impact the joy and happiness that food and community brought me early on and the values being raised partly in slovenian croatia that that instilled in me just made me appreciate food and got me curious about the origin of it like where does this food come from and studying sustainability i started to see oh my gosh we are shipping food from all over this is so unnecessary like every place <laughs> has the potential to grow you know their own food to some capacity and i started to really feel for farmers i think it was really the human centered aspect of farming that i connected to and just thinking of the livelihood and how arduous and how they're doing all this work to feed us and they're getting like no recognition they're underpaid farmers have you know i think the first or second highest suicide rates for any profession and i don't know there was something about the farmer that i felt like i want to learn more about that i think really my curiosity led me down this path 
in addition to my love of food and, and just being raised with like my mom, you know, really like cooked amazing meals. We would go to the farms and strawberry pick. And, you know, that was ingrained in my upbringing, this beautiful connection to nature. And so I really always thought about and cared what I put in my body and saw the impacts it had on my health, thanks to my wonderful mother who raised me in that mindset. <laughs> and so, yeah, through college studying, I was actually ended up focusing really on urban systems and urban development because I saw the impact that cities had and the simple design of a city, how it impacts our livelihood and the decisions we make and our health. And so I was like, wow, if I can like be an urban planner and design cities better so people could have more access to food, so we can have more walkability, so we can have more community and interactions naturally just by how a place is designed and then couple that with food and farming and how we can bring these kind of off-grid principles of permaculture, eco-village design, you know, where a lot of the pollution and for those few years in college. Um, but then I interned with an urban planner and was like, well, at the end of the day, it's a lot of measuring if a bike lane can fit. <laughs> and that is not my forte. <laughs> I was too creative to kind of limit myself to that. And yeah, life actually took me down the path of photography and videography very mystically by really following my heart. So amidst the food and farming I was really passionate about indigenous communities because I saw just the genocide, the the degradation, the the impacts that capitalism and just Western globalization in general was having on these communities. For example, in the Amazon, I had studied abroad in Ecuador. I had the opportunity and privilege to visit the most biodiverse place on planet Earth, which is in the Ecuadorian Amazon, Yasuni. And then to get there, though, you're passing through these oil mines that are just destroying and decimating this biodiverse jungle. And then I go back home to California to, you know, where you need a car in L.A. And I'm like filling up with shell gas. And that's the gas. That's the gas company it was right there. I was just like, you know, so I just started to kind of relate and see how actually small the world is and all the impacts we're having and how like food and globalism, all these things are not, they're affecting so much more than just the environment or climate change. They're affecting communities and cultures. And so again, I'm just so attracted to different cultures and people and people's stories. So I actually, after I graduated college, I quit. I was working just some odd random jobs in LA and I'm like, I'm not creating value. I can, I can do more. This is not my purpose. <laughs> and so my best friend Kumiko, after we graduated, she had moved to Ecuador and started making a documentary about the indigenous tribes and how their culture is being impacted by globalization and how they're using urban arts to, to bring back part of their culture. For example, there's a youth organization that would break dance, but they would incorporate traditional dance moves in their break dancing, or they would do graffiti, but have a grandmother with corn and really bring in these important symbols and rituals from their culture into urban arts. And that was like so inspiring to me. And so I was like, you know what, 
I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm quitting all my jobs in LA and I'm going to Ecuador and I'm going to help her with this film. I have like no experience in film or photography. I wasn't even that interested in it, but I was like, I just know I need to be there. It was a very like intuitive knowing. Mm -hmm. And I, at the time I was teaching yoga and I did a yoga fundraiser to raise some money and I raised $700 and I called her, I said, I'm ready to come down. What can I do with this money? And she goes, you know, I'm thinking she's going to say like, oh, you can, you know, buy clothing or they need water, you know, like very practical things. (laughs) She goes, the way you can create the most value would be come down here and buy a camera and take photos while I'm making this film. I was like, what? That's kind of crazy. Like, I'm not spending the money on myself. I really did this fundraiser for the community. And she just convinced me in 10 minutes. I was like posting on Facebook at the time, like photography friends, I have $700. What camera can I buy? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I just bought like a super basic Canon Rebel, went down there. I'm in the Amazon, like trying to figure out how to turn on the camera. Like I didn't even look up a YouTube tutorial how to work it. And um, we're living this complete documentary lifestyle where we're hosting, she started hosting cross-cultural exchanges between tribes because the oil companies would purposely keep them, you know, separated, divide and conquer. And um, so, yeah, she would host these and one tribe would take the other one down to their sacred waterfall and show them their water, you know, rituals and blessings and the other tribe would then in exchange do their traditional dance and we had a meal together and we're like, I'm in the middle of this taking photos and the children are walking up to the camera and their beautiful big eyes staring deep in the lens. And I just completely in that moment fell in love with storytelling because I also couldn't communicate with them. So they spoke Quechua and through the camera, we were able to build a beautiful relationship of trust and laughter. And then I gave the kids the camera and it was just this, this beautiful interaction. And then I realized, wow, now I have something tangible, these photos that I can bring back home and actually educate people and share what's happening in these communities based on our consumptive habits and patterns. Um, So I did that. I went back and, printed all the photos and did a photo exhibit. Again, I'm like still learning, but granted, I my mom's a graphic designer, so I grew up kind of seeing how she uses Photoshop. So I'd always kind of play around with editing photos, so it wasn't like totally foreign. Um, but yeah, that's basically the journey of how I started photography from a deep passion of just people and place and wanting to tell a story that I felt was really important to tell. That's so much. <laughs> and then like from that, <laughs> how I ended up here is that, um, so Rich Roll, who I think you're familiar with and his wife, Srimati Julie, uh, you know, I was their nanny for since I was 15. I was babysitting oh. <laughs> with the kids. And so they were following my journey and she saw my photos and she reached out when I got back and she's like, Leia, I want you to photograph my cookbook. And I was like, um, I'm very unqualified for this. <laughs> like, I just picked up the camera three months ago. I'm just figuring this out. Food photography is very specific, you know. 
Uh, and Rich is like, yeah, definitely she's not trained. We can hire anyone, like a professional, you know? And she's like, no, I believe in her. She has an eye. I want to mentor her. And she just like fully had confidence in me. And I'm so grateful for that because that's what really then gave me the confidence too. I'm like, well, if she believes I can do it. I think I can do it. Right. So then I started shooting. I went straight into shooting food for two years. And we have two published cookbooks, The Plant Power Way Italia and This Cheese is Nuts. And that just led me down the path. And then after that, I shot surfing. I lived in Morocco and did surf photography. And then full circle, I was really missing the farming side of my life. I didn't mention I started the university uh, garden at my school at Soka. And I was the <laughs> farm manager. And like, that's where I really had my hands in the soil and was so happy just like every day in the garden. Um, and so I was missing the farming side with all the photography I was doing now for a few years. And then really mystically, I meet Dr. Zach Bush and Long story short, there's like five stories within this, but I'm giving you the brief. Yeah, I, and by um, the way, do not feel uh, it's kind of what I like. I I love the details. So okay. do not ever feel like you have to make a long story short. That's kind of why okay. I like long form <laughs> conversation. It sucks. You can't see my face because you're missing every expression of amazement <laughs> and interest. Like, no, seriously. So Ed, feel free to elaborate on every single detail that you'd like to, because I, just naming, I, I'm at like six countries at this point <laughs> that, that you've like kind of not glanced over, but like glossed a little bit. So do not feel that pressure. Um, this okay. is amazing. Again, that's wh why I do this. Like I, where else will I get yeah. to talk to somebody with this kind of perspective? Great. Okay. Well, then I'll keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it goes full circle, which is wild. I could have never, ever predicted, like, if, you know, like child Leia or early 20 Leia even, I would never imagine this is what I'm doing. And this is totally my, like, dream job, what I'm doing now. So anyways, full circle. Um, I was really, I was in Morocco. I lived there for a year. I did surf photography, which was so fun because I was a competitive swimmer and I swam in college. So that was like an aha moment when I was first in the water and I was shooting that surfer in the barrel in the Maldives. I did a, I shot a surf retreat in the Maldives. That was my first time ever shooting surf. Again, another experience. I'm like, I'm not qualified. I don't have equipment. And the guy is like, no, you can totally do this. So again, I owe a lot of my career to people just believing in me. And I'm so grateful um, for those mentors. And I'm insp always inspired to encourage people too, because I just see the impact it's had on my life. So shooting surfing, it was like this aha moment, like, wow, I've trained my whole life for this as a swimmer, you know, and to have photography mm. paired with that and art was so satisfying. So that was a beautiful year. And I had the honor to shoot and um, be the water cinematographer for uh, this TV show that was featuring Mariam, who's the first, one of the first female Moroccan surfers, like one to really like go pro and compete and all that, which, you know, in a Muslim country, it's, it's not common for women to be in the water and surf. Um, so I got to do water cinematography for that, which was definitely a highlight. And then... 
I was like I mentioned, I was really missing the the farming side of things. And I was like, maybe I should just quit this photo thing and go into farming, you know, but that doesn't feel right either. Cause I can't not do art. Like I love, <laughs> you know, video and photo. So it's kind of perplexed. And I go to Ritual and Trumati's retreat in Italy. I've worked that retreat every year with them. And Dr. Jack Bush is their guest speaker. And at this point I was like, my ex who was Moroccan, we broke up and I was, he had broken up with me like days before. So I was like going to this retreat really like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do after this. I, I can't stay in Morocco. I don't want to go back to LA. Uh, I miss farming, but I don't want to quit photography. So I was just like, had all these like kind of life moments of like, I'm at just blank slate, blank canvas. And I didn't freak out. I was just like, I'm going to just be present this week, you know, and that's it. So I was very present and I end up sitting next to Dr. Jack Bush at a dinner at the retreat. He was the guest speaker and he starts talking about this nonprofit he just started around regenerative agriculture and they're looking for someone to document farmer stories <laughs> and I'm like hold on hold on you mean you'll pay me to go around and shoot videos and take photos of farmers that's like the ideal situation so I was like I don't actually want to be a farmer like I tried that and it's not for me but I want to be in farming so yeah it was like this crazy synchronicity where all the stars aligned and at the time the office was in Encinitas which is where I live now in San Diego County and that was like the dream place I always wanted to live but I was like I can't I don't know what I would do there how I can afford it so yeah basically left that retreat packed up my life moved back to moved to Encinitas and started working for Farmers Footprint and that was four years ago so since then, I've been documenting farmers across the U.S. for the past three years. And now this past year, I've had the privilege. I'm so grateful to take that internationally. And we're starting to tell global stories. So I was in Iceland. I was in the U.K., uh, Mexico, shooting all different types of stories from like these island farms in Mexico, uh, the Chinampas, to greenhouse farms in um Iceland that are powered by geothermal energy so anyways that's like the full journey of how I got into storytelling and photography and that's where I am now <laughs> oh my god um I had legitimately no idea that it was that deep <laughs> like <laughs> yeah that's a dense There's... life you've lived feel like you've lived like eight lives already yeah you know one thing that's been my prayer, and so I practice this form of Buddhism uh, called Soka, Soka Gakkai, Nichiren Buddhism. And we chant, and it's like very for everyday person. It's not like a, you want to be a monk, like that path, which I honor, but that's not my path. <laughs> uh, it's very real. And you like chant for things, right? And so while I was chanting, I really had this realization because when you're chanting, you're in, you're in a deep state of reflection. So I was reflecting like, you know, at this time I just graduated college. I wanted to maybe go to grad school for urban planning. And instead of chanting to get accepted to college and like having that prayer, my prayer really transformed to this was 
I want my passion, my skills, and my creativity to be fully utilized and appreciated. And however that expresses itself, great. But I can't predict how that's going to express itself. And now, four years later, with keeping that prayer for all these years, I truly can say that has been fulfilled. And I feel that my skills, my passion, my creativity are fully utilized through this work. So it's like, yeah, when I look at my journey and my life, it's definitely like there's been a lot of faith and a lot of intention and knowing an outcome that's that's like specific, but not refined and, and too like labeled in one category or one thing. You know, it's like open to how that, that prayer expresses itself. And a lot of hard work, like I'm a very loyal, committed person. And, you know, I really do love working. <laughs> so I'm passionate about what I do. Um, and, and then just those people that believed in me and, yeah, just surrendering to a lot of trust in the magic that's woven within life. And I do put a lot of faith in that. And I say that with also recognizing my privilege and I'm first generation American. My parents were immigrants. They had, you know, they struggled a lot. My aunts, all our ancestors lived very harder lives before. So I also realized the responsibility I have in this body, in this moment to you know, being born and raised in LA is such an amazing opportunity. And I feel like I have a big responsibility for that and for the struggles of my ancestors for me to be here and have all these opportunities. So I was actually just thinking that when to be so and and I don't want to be disrespectful when I speak about like spirituality, because I get I get self-conscious that I'm going to have like some sort of microaggression by like mislabeling something. So if I do, <laughs> I'll just like apologize right now for it. <laughs> I don't get microaggressive. Don't worry. <laughs> right. um, but like I, I think of uh, what would it be? Eastern European, no, Western European countries. No, yeah. Eastern, Eastern European, Eastern it, European yeah. countries. And I'm like, I don't get Buddhist vibes from that. So, right, like to come from, to have that sort of influence where you're growing up, but then is it like the LA or how do you feel you got to this realization or like this spiritual understanding, this spiritual place that you're in? Yeah, great question. Um, So like I mentioned, my mom is from Slovenia, dad from Croatia, and my mom, once she immigrated here and with her, her new partner, they've been together now 25 years he introduced her to yoga and that took her down the whole path of spirituality. So I grew up in a like half the household I grew up in my mom and stepdad's house was very spiritual and, you know, plant-based and they, my mom's been to India like nine times studying with different um, gurus and Vedics. And she's initiated in a lot of different meditation techniques. So that was kind of like a norm. I grew up spiritually open and then my dad on the other hand and stepmom are they're very like intellectual artists they're both very successful amazing talented artists and my dad was a music composer and organist and so I kind of grew up between these dichotomies of people who lived oh but ironically my dad was an organist so he spent you know most of his life playing the most sacred religious music in churches and temples and uh, synagogues, but he considered himself an atheist. 
<laughs> so like I grew up in like a very interesting upbringing of all this. And I think what was so beautiful was that I never really was like, oh, I take that side or that's mm. for me and that's not. I really witnessed how, wow, that works for my dad. That works for my mom. And there's no like judgment. And it's just, it's not one size fits all with spirituality and beliefs and lifestyles, you know? And I grew up very much just appreciating people's own perspectives and beliefs. And so, yeah, I guess it stems from that just household dynamic and upbringing. And then um, going to Soka was where I was introduced to the Buddhist, this particular form of Buddhism. And everyone, a lot of the students there were Buddhist. So it was just in my environment. And it took me four years of practicing it to really be like, wow. I'm witnessing a lot of benefit from this. And it's such a real practice. It's really powerful just to really sit every day and have that moment to reflect on your life and think how you're creating value. And yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. So the seed was always there. I was always an open person and spiritually open. Uh, and then Buddhism entered through my college experience. You've mentioned adding value a couple of times. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, do you, I want to like crack some sort of like anxiety joke about like, why do you want to save the world kind of a thing, <laughs> but it's super noble. So like me as a teacher, like I, I think about that often. I'm like, did I make someone's life better today? I'll like meet with kids and I'll be like, dude, do you feel smarter? He's like, you know, yeah, I think I learned something. I'm like, awesome. Like you just <laughs> made my day that I helped you to get understanding about content and I'm like, I, I guess I'm curious about, is that a Buddhist like tenant to add value to this world? Or is that just like a thing you feel like on your own? Yeah, it, I think that specific terminology was inspired through this Buddhism because like I mentioned, Soka means value creation. Mm. And so a lot of the root of, of that practice is the awareness of, you know, yeah, how are we creating value for ourselves and for others and the relationship between cause and effect. So like, for example, every time a lotus flower blooms, simultaneously, it drops a seed. Usually that process happens one after another, but this one's simultaneous. So like every day, every moment, we're making causes in our life. And every one of those causes has an effect, whether it's registered right now, tomorrow, or the next lifetime, whatever you believe, you know, some <laughs> moment, the cause has an effect. And so it's really taking responsibility for those causes and, and causes and effects. And for me, that kind of essence of that is under this notion of creating value. I think, like I mentioned earlier, I'm just so grateful that I have all like my health and that I was born in America and that I just feel there was not everyone is gifted all those opportunities and, and privileges. And so for me, it's like, I have full capacity. How can I utilize it? You know, cause uh, other, why not? What else would I do? And, you know, I'm not here to just like Netflix and chill, yo. Netflix yeah. and chill. <laughs> There's too much to do. And again, I think, cause I see so much beauty around me and in life, like I want to contribute and I have the ability to. So I think it really stems from that. Maybe it's my personality type, my human design, like whatever you want to call it. But right. <laughs> yeah, I just have that, that innate desire to 
to use use my gifts and create value from it. Yeah, and when I hear value, if I went like full bore, I want to create value, I feel like I wouldn't settle unless I was, as my man Mac Miller said, on my Donald Trump shit. Like just straight <laughs> capitalistic, greedy, have as many assets as I possibly can, maybe create some jobs, but ultimately I don't really don't want you to prosper. I just want my bottom line to get bigger. And like, do you battle that at all? Or like, how do you determine, or maybe why do you think your value is in like sustainability and earth and all this peacefulness and calmness? <laughs> because it's such a nice <laughs> vibe. I'm like, um, I'm actually kind of jealous. I don't have that same vibe. Maybe I need to start meditating. Namio Ringa Kill, man. Magic chant. No, I'm that's a great point. I think, well, that's the interesting thing with language, right? Everything's so weighted and back to parallax. Like it's all perspective and we have different associations mm. with different words based on conditioning. So yeah, I actually never have thought of value in that way, which is really cool. Interesting to hear that's your association with it. So it's always good too, yeah, to define things and, and like I should, I will now reflect on what, is value to me. What does that even mean? Um, it seems like clean, like earthliness, right? Like a natural state. It, it seems like a pureness. And and it seems very, I, I don't know, like I say those words, like how do you define pure? It's like, I don't know, man, like something's growing. Am I helping this other thing to grow? Or am I taking mm -hmm. the nutrients and the resources this would have for myself? And it seems like you go with the, no, I want to really embrace the naturalness and the organicness of situations and the earth versus using it for some sort of gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, at the essence of it is really as simple as, I don't know, I guess I associate value with importance, like something that, yeah, has impact in a positive way, of course, for me. <laughs> but yeah it's really interesting I guess I kind of just connected with that word without really like being able to define it myself so I'm gonna think on that one maybe the next podcast episode we'll dive into the meaning of value <laughs> yeah I, I just so man I I think it's something and I see it with kids and I really worry about it with I have a daughter she's 13 and social media and originality and value and I see these trends like every kid right now in, in Delaware is like they all have to wear Crocs or they all have to have a certain <laughs> Nike or they all have to like have this sock. They're, all their hair has to be the same way. And it's like this conformity and they find their value in fitting in. And I don't know if that's a terrible mm. thing, but it seems like where are you spending your time? Because I'm like time is one of the most finite resources, right? So what you give your time to by default, you almost value. And I'm like, yo, you are giving way too much time to the scrolling and the influence that scrolling is having on you versus experience and finding your own value. It's like you're being influenced mm. to value these things versus discovering what actually resonates with you as an individual. Because it's almost like your spirituality. Like Catholicism may resonate with somebody and they may feel great going to a Catholic church or a Christian church or a Buddhist church, wherever, right? And like, that's why do you like vanilla over chocolate 
I don't know. It's just my personal preference. And like you have right. your individual values and I worry with social media that it just warps what you value and you never get to actually find out this is my value. This does matter to me. And then I feel like that leads to depression. And it's why a lot of people become unhappy and why so many teens seem to be unhappy in all these surveys. It's because like, well, pursue your values. And it's like, oh, I don't know what I value. Well, that's kind of the problem. <laughs> like you need exactly. to discover it. You need to find what matters to you and like find fulfillment in realizing that and adding to that. Yes. I love that. I think that's that's such a good way to kind of summarize what we were getting at of yeah, just different perspectives of value and and that I think so much in this society right now that kids are being raised in, especially in America, you know, you kind of can easily get lost in what what you truly believe in and what your values are because we're just fed with so much saturation so many ads, so many things of how we should look and what we should do. So yeah, it's, it's wild. But I think through family and through community and through school, like you have such a powerful role as an educator with like all the kids and the youth that you're interacting with. Um, I have so much respect for teachers that that's the places where we can instill those values. So then when they're brought in these moments of, of scrolling and exposure to things that maybe shouldn't be of value, uh, they can have that self-regulating, like, okay, that's right. And that's not, because at the end of the day, we don't want to impose any values on anyone. It's not like you should believe this or that. I think the biggest potential is to build people's own capacity to critical think and have their own perspective so they can make their own decisions and then not have this like polarized judgment if someone thinks differently than you. Like look at what happened this past two years with COVID and vaccine, like so much polarization and and that's just so sad. Like yeah. we can have healthy arguments <clears throat> and healthy debates, but if we don't know like our intrinsic, you know, values and ethos as humans, yeah, it gets really like ego gets in the way and all this gnarly stuff that gets really messy. But yeah, I think I think there's that's kind of where through I mean, Soka, the whole ped, educational pedagogy is using school and education to uh, well create value and to really like for the for the reason of making people happy, like from themselves, not through outer things, satisfactions or outer happiness, but truly like finding that inner happiness and joy, um, not based on outer circumstances or material things. It so, yeah. kind of reminds me, and it might've been 20, 20 or so years ago, man, there was this um, like, an, um, fad might be disrespectful, but um, almost like a Bible study curriculum of purpose-driven life. Did you ever, do you hear about that or do you remember that? I haven't, no. Okay. Yeah, it was, I, I don't even know much about it. I remember it was like a journal and it has all these prompts and it's almost like what you're saying. And it's, it's interesting because ultimately what was the point? Well, it's to discover your purpose in life. And like, how do you do that? Oh, you take time and you think about and let your mind go to where it goes. And then you record that in a journal and you're like, logging what seems to matter to you. And then guess what your purpose-driven life should be? 
pursuing those passions in a decent way. And it's like, oh yeah, like so much of this like religion and so much of life seems to be based around like, yeah, man, maybe each person really is unique and is created with these unique desires. And if you can figure out a way to pursue them, you're probably going to really enjoy your experience while you're alive on earth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I, can I ask you about plant-based? Cause this is something I haven't spoken to anybody about really. Uh huh. And I feel, are, so are you like completely plant-based? Can you talk to me about how that happened for you or just, I guess maybe just start educating me or talking to me about it with your farm background? Yeah, totally. It's definitely been a journey. Um, So when I was a senior in high school, I just naturally didn't have the inclination to eat meat. Just something didn't feel right. I was like, I have no desire to do that. So I kind (laughs) of just self-initiated was like, I'm going vegetarian. My dad was like, you're crazy. You need the protein, you know, the classic. (laughs) And my mom was vegetarian already. So that was great. But um, so I stayed vegetarian throughout my until my senior year of college. And again, I was a competitive swimmer. I do long distance. The mile was my event. I'm an endurance athlete. And I just started noticing just I felt weaker. It's just something was off with my health. And now actually there's probably other things like gluten and just overall cafeteria food that probably <laughs> was not conducive <laughs> to my strength and health. Um but I felt, well, maybe I should eat some meat. So I kind of started eating meat again then. And then uh, when I came back from Ecuador and was photographing the plant-based cookbooks, I went vegetarian again. I wasn't, you know, competing and stuff. So, and I was around a vegan household, so it was very easy and access to that food all the time while shooting. Um, So did that. And then when I moved to Morocco, I started, you know, I noticed the chickens, the everything was so local and so like, not in like CAFO, you know, confined um, animal units and stuff. It was like very more wholesome. And I felt better because I was, um, I'm allergic to gluten and, so I was like, and they do couscous every Friday and pita, like a lot of gluten. So I'm like, dang, well, I got to eat something. If I can't eat gluten, like meat was the other alternative. So there I kind of started to slowly introduce meat back. It felt like it was coming from a better source. And then, you know, once I started working in regenerative agriculture, I really saw the importance that animals play in the ecosystem. Like mm-hmm. a successful farm has to have animals integrated because it's that whole like circular system where everything's benefiting each other. The poop from the cow or the chicken is creating great compost for the soil. And, and then, you know, at the end of that life, that cow or chicken's life, I think it's a personal choice whether you want to eat that or not. And so I started actually working in Regen Ag. I started to eat meat again confidently from sources I really trusted and knew. So yeah, I'm spending more money on it. It's more expensive to maybe buy a regenerative um, beef or chicken, but I'm eating it less. You know, I only eat it once a week or once a month, whatever my cadence is that time period, it shifts. (laughs) But um, yeah, and you know, I'm not, 
perfect. And here and there, I'm in situations where I don't have an option, or maybe it would be disrespectful to not accept the food that's given to me. So I'm uh... I'm not too picky with it because I think that causes more um, dishealth in the body if you're stressing over everything you put in your body. You know, I think that's we have to be a bit more lax. There's like an obsession with that too. That's not healthy. So yeah, I think animals are really important in agricultural systems. We need them and they do die at some point. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard. Cause like, especially when I'm on a farm and I see such a cute lamb, I'm like, I can't eat that. So I don't really eat lambs. <laughs> All animals are cute, but yeah, I think for me, it feels good in my body. I think everybody is different and needs different things, but really the bottom line, what I've learned through the health aspect and through the farming aspect and through the environmental aspect is that the best thing we can do for our own health and for the environment is eat as local as possible and organic, like just no chemicals, no GMOs, that stuff kills all the microbes in the soil. So the plants don't have as much nutrients and then we're not getting that nutrients. Um, our food has been depleted of nutrients compared to, you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago because they're spraying so many chemicals. And so there is such a direct correlation between soil health and human health. And that soil health is determined by that ecosystem it's in with all the animals interacting with it and supporting that microbial life. And so, yeah, my partner's a farmer, Farmer Greg, and he's like, you know what? Even growing just vegetables, we are killing life. Like, you can't deny, like, plants have a life. (laughs) And we kill that life to eat it. And you have to kill squirrels and gophers and other animals to grow your vegetables. So there's also this recognition that even plant-based, you're not still you're still like participating in killing some form of life at the end of the day right dude it's so interesting to me that you've again i'm now i'm all conscientious about my word choice but like swayed or that you don't have like this one hard stance on diet yeah i mean my hard stance i would say i'm pretty like intense about just eating local sourcing directly from your farmers but in terms of like actual diet man it's it's a journey because like my mom is always educating me on like there's ayurvedic there's all these different forms and philosophies around food and what's best for us and we can get so obsessed too with the numbers on our aura ring of like our cow you know all this stuff and scientific stuff and Great, but like then I just simplify and I look at my grandma who's like 93 and super healthy and happy and like she just she grew up on like potatoes and sauerkraut mainly and meat <laughs> once a week with some shots of homemade vodka and like she's great and now and then like now she doesn't buy organic and she buys the cheapest available and she eats a lot from her friend's garden too like they bring her vegetables like I would say a lot of her vegetables are local organic but then she'll buy like conventional meat and bread so it's like I don't know I just can't get too convinced or obsessed with any one modality because there's always something to prove otherwise yeah and I think it's just I try to just eat really intuitively and listen to my body and what feels right and to me that is definitely like anything Greg can grow on the farm. That's my first choice. And then there's anything else locally outside that from the farmer's market. 
I can buy and then supplement with, yeah, what, what I can. <laughs> uh, yeah. Help me understand more. So like I get grass fed. So I, I get like cheap beef. And when I look at the difference, I go to the supermarket between the cheaper beef and then like grass fed beef, you can tell a difference. The meat looks denser. There seems to be the white lines seem to be less prevalent <laughs> in the okay. grass fed. But is there a step above grass fed that I should be like looking into? Should I be ordering something online somewhere if I'm looking for like real high quality of meat? Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky nowadays because even there's grass fed, there's USDA organic, even USDA organic, it's just a certification that's ticking boxes. It's not actually, it's not like the ideal, right? Um, and it's hard to, from a consumer perspective, to know like what to trust. And that's why, again, knowing your local farmers and sourcing from them is probably the best. Um, and asking like, do you use chemicals? Are you, what are your practices? Uh, you really have to have the will to do that and go out of your way, but props <laughs> to you if you do. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of beef, definitely if you can find a regenerative source, like you can Google probably regenerative beef um, in whatever city you're in or town. Uh, and there are a lot of companies that do ship. Um, again, that's like kind of just again, find a source as local to you as possible. But I think it's still good to support those farmers, even if they're maybe in the neighboring state. Again, we can't be perfect. But yeah, basically, regenerative is looking at the whole ecosystem. So it's really ensuring that that cow or that animal is eating healthy food that it is used to eating for generations. You know, we're not giving it soy or inserting corn or these things that didn't normally eat you know like gmo food too it's eating the native grasses and, and things from the land and it's stomping on that grassland and regenerating the soil through its poop and through it, the compression of its stomping um so there's like a whole elaborate ecosystem that is regenerative that entails regenerative rather than just grass-fed it could be grass fed, but still maybe like they're not using good practices with their water and they're wasting a lot of water or they can still technically, I, I don't know too much about grass fed actually specifically, but I don't think that means anything to do with if it's even organic. Um, so it's just tricky with the labels because as a consumer, it's quick education, at least to know, okay, this is this or that, but it doesn't really tell the whole story. So it does take a bit of like self um, education. And that's really what we're passionate about and doing at Farmer's Footprint is sharing farmer stories for this reason. So as a consumer, you can make the best educated um, decision and choice on what you want to support because we support with our dollar with every purchase of food or meat we buy. Yeah, um, I, I want to go back to the suicide rate. So I had... Um... Colby on from Stop Soldier Suicide this past summer. And he was mm. telling me some terrible statistics um, about former servicemen and women who were taking their lives and it was staggering. I had never heard anybody bring up farmers and suicide rates. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to like label you an expert or anything, but anything that you can tell me because I was taken, I was like super shocked by that. I, I wouldn't have thought that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a staggering statistic. And, you know, farming, when we look at most of the food in the grocery store, it's like, me too, like, I'm going to try to buy the cheapest, most affordable option. (laughs) This conventional system has made food so convenient and so cheap that really through the use of um, chemical agriculture, because that speeds up the process, you're you can just spray weeds without having to hand harvest them. Like, of course, it breeds efficiency and scale and higher yields and all this stuff that that's where the margin is for farmers, where they can actually be, you know, maybe making more money because they can scale up. Um, but it has a detriment on human health and environmental health. And at the end of the day, what we've seen with farmer mental health, because they're not over time, they have they be basically the way the system's set up is they become dependent on these chemicals. They become dependent on GMOs because they don't work forever. Like over time, the plants become resistant to the pesticides and they become resistant to the GMOs. So the farmers left then with like depleted soil. So they can't, it's not conducive for them to grow more crops because their soil is literally killed of all the microbiology that you need to grow, you know, healthy vegetables so um yeah the system kind of has for lack of a better word effed over the farmer (laughs) um and for our you know to create this really cheap food system and it's tricky because like food should be more expensive but also like it shouldn't if it's local and you're not paying for chemicals and big tractors and all this stuff that like a monoculture requires. It's a whole like we have to just basically redesign and re-gift the whole farming system and structure. But that's another story. So, yeah, I think farmers are left in this place. A lot of them end up taking their lives through just the the mental health of not being able to keep their farm going because they've been drawn into this conventional system that isn't actually life-giving for the plants, for them. They end up owing a bunch of money, taking out debt to pay for the chemicals and the seeds that now seeds are patented. In India, I know there was a huge farmer suicide epidemic years ago and the farmers actually would drink the poison, the pesticides to take their lives. Like that's how bad it was. So yeah, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I did write a paper back in college on the India farmer suicide rates and it was pretty astounding. It's a terrible, like it's a terribly dark place to be and thinking about life. Like that's the option to go to. And I'm wondering about like the over leveraged. So is it like generational that you lost or is it more aspirational? I want to have something for my family and it didn't work out. Do you remember anything like that? Well, I think a lot of the farms, they are like, I would say the ones in that category of farmer suicides are like multi-generational farms that they've inherited and it's like family farms you know from like their great great grandfather so it's so personal too like farming is often you're continuing a legacy that your ancestors have passed down to you but at that time you know they you know many years ago when they weren't like pre the 90s they weren't you know spraying chemicals as much and they actually regenerative agriculture is really 
pre-industrial, the indigenous way of farming, that deep connection people had with their land and observing the patterns of their land and really getting to intimately know their land and what it needs. And a sign of success was that the bird migration was still happening over your farm or that, you know, the life, you were still very aware of the life cycles where now a farmer like these big scale conventional farmers are spending most of their day in their office and they're hiring someone to come out and spray the chemicals. And they just have like, it's all computer work now being a farmer. And so, yeah, it's crazy how that shift happened. And, and with this new introduction of the GMOs and the patented seeds and the chemicals, it's just a whole new way of farming that maybe their great, great, great grandfather didn't do and didn't have this. I mean, there were different struggles, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> back then. Um, but yeah, I think it's they're the first to experience this this kind of decline in productivity because at the end of the day, these conventional systems, they're, they're really productive at the very beginning, but over time they decrease in production because the soil is depleted. So it's like over time, they're now experiencing the slow failure. So farmers footprint, we have a film, it's 20 minutes online for free. You can watch that really goes into this and it follows this one family and it's that kind of human centered story um, and it really draws that connection between soil health and human health and kind of all these different topics I'm touching on. So, yeah, I would highly recommend uh, taking a look at that film if you're interested to learn more. Farmer's Footprint. It's so weird to go down that avatar road of thinking of like trees and mushrooms being connected and like speaking mm. through soil. We went to this plantation in... um. I want to say it was in North Carolina and it was talking about, it's like, it's weird in Delaware to think about, but it was like half a mile of road where these trees were on both sides. And as you're speaking to one of the tour guides, they were talking about how the trees can like one side of the tree, if it gets, if it notices another tree is not getting sunlight, it can actually share the nutrients through mm-hmm. the root system and they discover the roots start to entangle so that they can become more symbiotic. And you're like, what? That makes <laughs> yeah. no, like it, it just, it seems so science fictiony, but then at the same time, you're like, it's probably, it's been going on since like the earth has been around, I'm assuming. And like, mm-hmm. they are living organisms. When you talk about soil health, it's so hard to, for me to like, just think of soil as being living, not as like a thing I walk on. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And that's like a big focus now in the whole regenerative ag movement. Like a lot of storytelling and awareness is around the soil health aspect and how like soil is a solution. And it is. And it's soil in conjunction with everything around it and the people too and their livelihoods and the well-being of the animals. And it's like a whole system. But soil really is a huge factor, especially when we look at you know, um, with climate change and carbon sinks and the soil's ability to absorb carbon. And yeah, there's, there's so much there, but it is living, it's alive. And it's, it's what keeps our health intact, really. It's like the plants are kind of, I guess the plants are kind of like the messenger of this, of the nutrients of the soil, because that's their food, you know, so if the origin of where you're sourcing your food from isn't full of microbes and life and nutrients then every step of the way is going to be depleted and then we get that depleted food so super important to keep that soil healthy like 
Greg, my partner, he feels like he's farming the soil more than the plants. You know, that's his priority when he farms is making sure it has the compost and everything it needs to really be healthy. And you see the difference, like plants grown in good soil are strong and resilient and they taste better. There's a total correlation with flavor as well, like more flavorful food. And I'm not saying like the Cheetos or the like, you know, <laughs> chemically made food that maybe tastes good as an illusion, <laughs> but like genuinely good, like strawberries or tomatoes that you pick right, you know, off the vine or in, from the farm. You, everyone notices there's a difference in that flavor. And that flavor correlates with nutrients. Like, yeah. The more nutrients it has, the better flavor it has. Like because, there's science around that whole connection. Yeah, me knowing nothing about it, I feel like your body flavor is just like an incentive to consume more, right? And if your mm. body, if it's the nutrients that your body is designed to want, have, sustain, live, grow with, it makes complete sense that it would be more flavorful than a Ritz cracker or a salty, mm -hmm. something like that, where it's like, yeah, it's not bad. It's filling, but I don't know if it's like, there's a huge difference between filling and flavorful. Mm -hmm. And the feeling you get after you eat, like I'm, oh, yeah, I've become man. now so intuitive and aware. Like I can even think of like, Ooh, I would really love that chocolate ice or whatever it is. And immediately all the reaction in my body where I'll get like a for one second, this like pain in my stomach or something will feel off just by the thought of it. I've come to that level now with that body mind connection. That's pretty <laughs> wild. And a lot of time I ignore it. because I'm like, there's no way that's connected. And then I eat the thing and I feel that way. And I'm like, gosh, I knew it. <laughs> I should have listened. I really wanted that chocolate ice cream. <laughs> but yeah, I think we're kind of back to the values and that disconnection we have. Um, maybe to knowing what our values are. Same with the disconnection we have with how food is truly affecting us. Because food, I think we need to honor that food brings pleasure. And that's a beautiful part of it. And I have so much pleasure when I'm eating good food. <laughs> and that's beautiful. And also food has function and purpose and, and that ability to actually sustain us and keep us alive. And so, yeah, I noticed I've been really trying to eat by feeling, okay, after I eat this salad versus this pizza, like, how am I going to feel differently after the fact? And, you know, I remember talking to someone and they're like, yeah, you should always like take a nap after you eat because you you're always tired after you eat. I'm like, that is so not true. Food is supposed to give us life and give us energy. Uh -huh. Like we literally eat food to have energy. So the food that makes you want to go to sleep, like the pastas and the bread, you know, I enjoy those fully on occasion, but you shouldn't be eating things that are putting you to sleep or want to go to sleep. Yeah. You should be eating things that make you feel like energized and feel great. So it's connecting to how your body feels with what we're putting in it. And that should be our deciding factor for nutrition and our food choices too. I'm curious with like the city planner background, if you have a theory or if you actually know, like, is there a percent of the population that's that doesn't know what a real strawberry tastes like? And that sounds like mm. such like a matrixy question. Like, are we in a simulation type thing? But I, like, I don't know. I, eight years ago, I went to Mexico and I had a banana that tasted like no other banana I've ever had since. 
Uh-huh. And they were like, yeah, dude. And they looked not like in a condescending way, but they were like, yeah, man, it came from the tree. It didn't like come off a tree before it was ripe, get put in a crate, miss out on sunlight, get shipped, go through customs, and then sit in a grocery store for a day. It was like, yeah, we got that like this morning off a tree kind of thing. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, like, no wonder. Like, can I, can I take some home with me? And I wonder how many people miss out on that experience with so much of their food. And I'm curious if you have like numbers behind that or is there like theories about how it could be better mm-hmm. with what mm-hmm. cities are and density of people? Yeah, I don't know. That would be an interesting study. But um, one resource I have is Sherry who runs Flavor Remedy and her whole thing is around this ex- excuse me, this exact topic of flavor, flavor with health, flavor with nutrient density. She really looks at the the essence and power of flavor and getting back to training our our taste buds for what that like true good flavor is that's conducive to health. So yeah, if anyone she would know. But um, the only like statistic maybe that's kind of somewhat correlated that I just found out is that only, this is from Kiss the Ground, they just did a study, according to them, only 4% of American adults are aware of the the value (laughs) of regenerative agriculture, (laughs) which is interesting. I think like 96% of the population isn't really aware. And it's like, wow, how can we change a system that's so exploitive, like the food system, if people are just uneducated about it? And that's, again, coming back to storytelling, why I'm so passionate about telling stories of farmers um, and the work we do at Farmers Footprint. So, yeah, but I'll have to, well, we should look into that. I don't know that percentage. Yeah, I just know about hearing, and I don't live in cities, but or in a city, but um, hearing about processed food, fast food, McDonald's being able to open up, but not whatever, a whole foods, right? Or like farmer's markets not being available. Or if there are fresh produce, it's actually cheaper to get a value meal compared to the individual ingredients in cities specifically. And like that leads the whole, is that part of mental health issues? Is that part Mm. of, like, you don't want to put it on like crime, but it's like this weird, it, it doesn't help society that people aren't eating healthy. Like it just, Mm -hmm. it just would lead to me like this agitation or this weird uneasiness or this unsettledness. And it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting concept to explore. Just we have the resources, but why not have the quality resources? Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, I'm curious, Sean, and where you teach, like what's the cafeteria food in the school? I'd say I've only taught in two schools. Um, I think most of it, the meat part is super processed. Like it's definitely cheap and scaled, but Mm -hmm. there's fresh fruit options. So, you know, you can have edamame, there's always straw, there's always apples that are whole or pre-sliced in a package. They have both. They always have bananas. They always have oranges, usually some sort of a like, salad option, but Mm -hmm. the majority of carbs and I guess what you'd call protein is like that. Are we sure this is chicken? 
Right. Kind of right. like, oh, okay, that's General So's. Oh, this is Chicken Teriyaki Day? Cool. And you look at the rice and you're like, is this real like long grain, fluffy rice? I, I don't know about the different qualities of rice, but I look at that stuff and I'm like, that does not look like it reminds me of like the silicon gel tabs that are like mm. moisture sucking in. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's what it seems like they're eating. Cause I mean, honestly, like a kid pays a dollar twenty five, a dollar eighty five mm-hmm. for lunch, and it's like it's seven hundred kids. You 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 scale that out, and you're like, we make it so cheap, it can't be of a high quality. Mm-hmm. Unless yeah. it's getting subsidized like crazy, you know. Unless like there's a ten dollar credit for every lunch given. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's like children in their like formative years of development. They should be getting, you know, really good quality nutrition at that stage. And yeah, the I just remember growing up, I never ate in the school cafeterias, thankfully. My mom always made some unique <laughs> lunches that um, other people looked at. But hey, I was going to say, you were, you were the kid. <laughs> I was that kid. <laughs> Like, dude, why do you have a real fork and knife? Like, who yeah. does that? <laughs> oh, like, man. But, yeah, that's that's a huge opportunity of school lunches and, and getting kids really the nutrition they deserve. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that it can't be more – because I don't know if it's, like, vote getting or if it would be popular. But especially where rural – in Southern Delaware and like the agriculture's around. And it's interesting that there can't be more of a farm to school, almost like farm to table connection that would sustain and help farmers, right? They, they would make more money. They would have a set market that's very um, predictive because you know how much you're going to have to produce and they're, and it's, they're going to, the schools right. are going to want it. And it's like, that's kind of a win-win versus buying a bunch of stuff. And our company is Cisco and it's like you see these Cisco trucks roll in and it's like, oh, there's a bunch of frozen beef patties. Cool. Mm-hmm. Here they go. Let's throw them all in the <laughs> confection oven and make 700 of these things real quick. And there you go, guys. Here's here's pizza slice. Always got your pizza for you. Yeah. And that like maybe was even shipped from China or yeah. Ecuador, like all over. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? And it, it really, it, it is, it definitely is an option, but I think. I don't know, people worry more about like test scores more than they do nutrition. But you do wonder, would kids focus more? Would they be happier more? Would they have less stress and anxiety if they kind of ate better? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, there has to be studies on that correlation. I mean, I think we've all just know from our own life experience of like certain foods just make us more lethargic. And especially now with like, I know I I can't eat gluten and brain fog and all these things like food affects us on so many levels of health and mental health and uh, well-being that yeah that that's there's got to be some studies on that of the impact of eating like a really healthy healthy rich diet versus not on children especially and in schools and their performance and engagement yeah and if there's no st- study there's at least um, snicker commercials. Where you like morph into back to yourself when your hunger is subsided, which are like that, that, whoever thought of that from a marketing standpoint, I'm like that person 
absolutely needed a corner office. That was <laughs> that's like the caveman Geico level. That Snickers, um, I don't even know a guy campaign. It was awesome. Oh, I got a, I got a YouTube that commercial. Oh yeah, see it. that's the thing. You actually travel and live life. I just sit around and watch <laughs> a screen all day, so I know all these references. <laughs> And it's like whatever you're Roseanne bar and you're like complaining about everything. And then it's like, Greg, do you need a Snickers? And the dude takes a bite and he turns back to himself. It's like, you're always hangry. And it was uh, like before. And it, that like, that's the whole point is like, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Um, mm -hmm. But like, is it the market would be like, are you your full self? If you're not new, what would, not nutriized, but like, what would the. What would the verb be without your nutrients? Mm. You're not your full you without your full nutrients. Something like that. Yeah. Can, since I think we're on to something. <laughs> we're, we're spitballing. No bad ideas. We're just spitballing. No bad ideas, yeah. <laughs> um, since we were talking about schools, I'm super curious about you as an endurance runner. So my daughter in seventh grade is a cross-country runner, and she's pretty decent. She actually um, won like her little middle school event for the state oh. in the mile. And I'm super nice. curious about you as a competitor because you're a Buddhist and you're not supposed to be competitive, right? <laughs> <laughs> love that. Love that. Um, so, yeah, I was a swimmer, competitive swimmer. And I actually did do cross country my senior year of college. I was like, you know, it'll be fun. Some good cross training. Wasn't the most fun thing I can say now, but <laughs> I gave it a go. You know, within this Buddhism, like I said, it's very, it's like, I wouldn't say it's Buddhism is Buddhism, but this type is, again, it's for everyday people. And so it really helped my swim training and my, my kind of competitiveness because it brought me to a state of focus. So I would even like chant while I was swimming because you have to get in rhythm when you're swimming a mile, you're in cadence with your breath. You're just in a state of flow that like, you just kind of get in a trance, you know, as you would with running long distance or anything. And so the chanting kind of would help me like just keep a rhythm and flow and, and be in that moment. And so much of my swimming was my mind. I would say it's not even my strength at that point. It's your, the strength of your mind, really, when you're doing endurance sports. And so I really was working on training my mind and chanting helped me through that and helped me to think because you know, in the mile, I would, my coach would get every 50 yards, every two laps, he would get my time to see like, oh, like this 50 went slower, this one went faster. I remember this one particular race so vividly where he was, we looked at my times after my splits and he's like, yeah, you really slowed down here. Like, I don't know what happened. And I remember at that moment, whatever lap 30 it was or whatever, I started thinking negatively and I was like, ah, F this, I'm in pain. I don't want to keep going. This is so hard. And then the next, I did a flip turn and the next lap, I'm like, Leia, stop it. Like, get yourself together. Go, 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 go. I just like repeat, go, go. <laughs> I just hyped myself up and immediately, you know, my time transformed and I got back on pace. And so through the chanting, I'm like actively kind of bringing out my fullest potential in that moment uh, rather than sinking down into the depths of pain and suffering <laughs> that very much comes with that sport and that endurance. <laughs> so yeah, it was really conducive and I chanting brings me a lot of hope. Like I chant with a lot of faith and like really that anything's possible. So I would, you know, I have these mental constructs like, Oh, I can't swim that fast. I can't break 
the two minutes and the 200 and through chanting, I would like really like reprogram my brain to be like, it is possible. Cause if you don't think it's possible, it's probably not going to happen. But as soon as you believe something's possible, I think it actually opens up the possibility of you doing it um, more likely. So yeah, I would chant a lot for two, just like believing in myself and believing that I can go faster and do better. Is it disrespectful to the art or to the like the sacredness of a chant to ask you to like do one or like what's the word what's the mantra or is it like too special to do that just yeah. in a casual oh no i'm totally happy to share it. it's <laughs> namyoho renge kyo so you repeat that it's like namyoho renge kyo namyo and you're essentially chanting to um this scroll it's called the gohanzin and it's basically supposed to be like a mirror so you're essentially, every time you're chanting, you're like looking in the mirror, you're facing things, you're facing real life things, and you're chanting for things, even material things. If you want a new car, you can totally chant for a new car. But through the process of chanting and through the, the process of studying, that's like studying the literature and all that is one facet of the practice. That's important because it helps you like the way you think, right? And, and make decisions and move through things. But through the process of chanting you're in the state of reflection to really think bigger than yourself and like oh well if you do want a car like going back to value like what's the more value I can create out of the situation so it's not just this greedy thing I want for me but how can other people benefit from this too mm. that's for me my process of chanting is always expanding beyond just my view and my wants and how can value be created for others as well um, and kind of multi-stack those functions, like multiple <laughs> functions for one thing. Um, so yeah, it's really cool that you can chant for anything and your your process of chanting shifts the more you do it, and especially if you chant for one thing. So this is a really goal-activated uh, practice. Like we literally write down goals and chant for those goals and then share experiences because it's all about proof. If you don't have proof that it's working, don't do it. <laughs> but then we like hear these experiences and share our own of like, wow, I overcame this through chanting because I shifted my thought or I shifted what I thought was possible or I came up with this new kind of alternative of how to go about that and realize maybe I was causing the problem and it wasn't the other person, you know? So it really causes deep inquiry through the process of chanting. Is it always the same words in the chant? Yeah, you always repeat that mantra. Huh. Is there a so you? Yeah, go on. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask. Like, is there a translation? And you might have said it earlier, and I just missed it. There is, and I didn't say it. So the translation of Namyoho Renge Kyo is. Um, Give me a second. Hold on, my dog. Okay, so we, <laughs> my little dog is so hungry. Um, Namiho Renge Kyo, devotion to the mystic law of the simultaneity of cause and effect through sound vibration. Through sound vibration. So the connection comes, like the, it empowers the chant. So the chant itself is talking to you about how the power of chanting makes those things happen, manifests. <laughs> Well, it's pretty metaphorical too of like oh. you're literally <laughs> using your voice. Literal. <laughs> yeah. What was that? No, I'm just thinking like you're like, yeah, it's pretty metaphorical. I was like, yeah, I'm just completely making it all literal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's literal too. Like you are literally 
doing sound vibrations, saying sound vibrations, right? putting sound vibration out there. They're yeah. chanting out loud because you chant out loud. And they say you want to chant like the roar of a lion. You know, it's like, uh, it's really invigorating. You're like, you know, you can work through things and it's so inspiring. And really the core of this is like faith and hope and happiness. So it's a really positive. But um, yeah, so the simultaneity of cause and effect, that's what I talked about earlier like really taking responsibilities of every cause we're making in our life to have the effect where we want. It's so easy to like step back and blame other things or blame life situations for our hardships or, you know, things that happen. But at the end of the day, we really have to take responsibility of the causes we've made to end up where we are, you know? And mm. so it's really like when you're chanting, you're reflecting, okay, if I want this car too, like, what are the causes I need to make to achieve that? It's not just like hoping for magic and, you know, the mystic to just the universe to just provide. No, it's like you need to freaking stand up and take action and make causes for what you want. So it's very like in this realm oriented, which I love. Um, so the simultaneity of cause and effect through sound vibration. Yeah. So through repeating the mantra through the sound and the power of, you know, prayer and voice. Like I always feel after I chant, I'm like inspired to sing or I'm inspired to speak up more because I've like really opened my vocal cords and <laughs> I have that strength now in my voice to speak up. So, yeah. It seems so interesting to me. I, I get this visual in my head of a soul leaving a body. Like, because if you're chanting, it, it, you don't think about blinking, you don't think about breathing, right? I'm, I'm not thinking right now, how do I make my heart beat? But I do have to think about speaking these words and making these sounds. And I'm very like mm. deliberate where my mind is that it matches where my words are. So like mm -hmm. when I start thinking about chanting, but then having my <laughs> mind drift to these realizations, it's like, well, how do I keep chanting if I'm thinking about other stuff? Yeah, well, that was my struggle the first few times I did it. I'm like, I can barely say it's like a mix of Japanese, Chinese, and Sanskrit, that prayer. Okay. So I'm like, I can barely pronounce this, <laughs> let alone repeat it and try to like reflect on my life and think about how to create value. And, you know, it's like, yeah. I just need to practice the chant. So after I really got comfortable with the chant, like, it totally comes natural where you're you just go into that state of chanting without totally like breathing like you said really? and then your mind just enters this place of like yeah either you have your list of things you're chanting for or you can have guidance or wisdom in front of you to like kind of well ideally you would like study or read something before or after to help inspire or guide facilitate kind of your your thought process of chanting but no, it definitely just happens naturally with a few sessions. You like get in it and can totally multitask in that way. <laughs> multitask. <laughs> Sounds so disrespectful, <laughs> but like, I guess that's like what it is, right? Your uh, mind's going. Well, because you had to, you were talking about like roaring like a lion, lion but when you're swimming, are I guess you just are roaring on your inside or was that, am I like reading too much into the literalness? Like you're, you have this weird silent room in your home that's completely padded and you're just shouting for 20 minutes. Yeah. Good point. Uh, when I swim, I don't chant, chant out loud. It's in my head, <laughs> but yeah, it is. It, 
you know, you can like quietly chant or whisper chant if you're in a room with someone or around people. But yeah, I like to be louder. Like I'm not yelling, but I, you have some like energy and force in your voice. And also I didn't mention your eyes are open. So rather than a meditation where your eyes are closed and you're really like kind of falling into the dark abyss of nothingness and just sitting in that kind of emptiness of everything, uh, this is a bit more of an active form of meditation where your eyes are open because they say you're like awakening your Buddha nature and you're roaring like a lion. So it's, or like I also use the term a galloping horse. Like when you're chanting, it's like the, the rhythm of a galloping horse. And what happens too is for me, what I feel is happening when I chant, it's like I'm connecting with the forces and rhythm of the universe, whatever, however you interpret that. But it's really this flow where things start to kind of get more synchronistic. And um, again, it's based off causes I'm making too. There's an element of like the magic and there's an element of causes too. And just being open to receiving these synchronicities and things that happen. But yeah, I feel like I just like enter this realm of infinite possibilities where like I break down all those kind of limiting thoughts or limiting factors and open up this breath of like this window to like anything is possible when I'm chanting. And I think that's so healthy to be in that state of just infinite possibilities. As many stars as there are in the sky are ways to like go about a situation or solutions there can be to this problem and having that vastness and spaciousness is really exciting to move through obstacles and challenges because it reframes my association and my energy around that issue to then like make an opportunity and one phrase we use is turning poison into medicine so when we're chanting like how are you taking a situation poison and turning it into medicine it is so funny you bring that up because i was like did you ever have any realizations where you were like no (laughs) and like it made it super like things that you didn't want to happen but you were like am i really going to trust the process and believe Mm -hmm. in this now or because you're so positive man like i'm taken back (laughs) By how, and I don't mean that like as an insult in any way. I think it's more like um, an insult towards me to be like, dude, why are you so pessimistic? But, <laughs> like, it just seems like this is always, or yeah, just such a positive experience. I'm curious if so, there were any realizations that were like somewhat negative or difficult or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> the experience I had, for one example, there are many, but one of this like, oh my goodness moment was when, um, yeah, I was, I applied to USC and UCLA for grad school and I was chanting like, I'm going to get in and really just like amping myself up that like, this is a possibility and you know, this is what I want and I'm going to get accepted. And then through that process, I started to have doubt and I'm like, actually, I don't know if this is what's best for me. Like, how would I know if this is really what my life path should be and I I went you know and again this happened like through the chanting process this was my thought process of like man I don't know what I want so then I started to think well what do you want out of grad school and I was like well I want at the end of the day that that prayer I told you earlier that my passion my skills and my creativity are fully utilized and appreciated 
And so if grad school is the answer for that and I get it, well, if the answer is grad school, I will get accepted. And if grad school is not the answer to fulfill that mission, that prayer, then I trust that there's another alternative route that will get me there. So instead of getting the rejection letter and being disappointed, I mean, I got into... I got into my second choice, which was USC. I didn't get into UCLA, which was my first choice, which I would have gone to. But I was like, I was like, I'm not trying to go thousands of dollars in debt and for something I don't even know I'm 100%, you know, want to do. Smart. So I decided not to go. But when I got that rejection from US, UCLA, I was like, I wasn't disappointed. That could have totally been like doubted me, my my worth and put me in a, you know, negative place and all that. But I was like, no, I freaking chanted for this and for the outcome I wanted. And I trust the universe has a different plan for me that's going to actually fulfill this, this prayer I have. And lo and behold, like, absolutely has it now, you know, through all these years, I've come to this point where I'm like, wow, and if I went to grad school for urban planning, I bet you I wouldn't be a, a storyteller right now. Could you imagine you know, so. you're in knee pads with like a hard helmet with like those orange cones around you trying to figure <laughs> out if sidewalks are like, like, like making assuring that um, <laughs> like wheelchair compliant sidewalk to road crosswalks have been built correctly. <laughs> Like yeah, I mean, I'm still passionate about it, but not it, not like the urban planner side and yeah. respect for them. But yeah, exactly. Because I interned with an urban planner after I graduated and that's where I had that realization and that's where the doubt come, came in of like, oh, dang, like I don't think this is what I thought it was. I thought I could be creative and just like come up with cool ideas of how to design cities with farms. And and yeah, I think there is normal. I mean, I couldn't name a city that's like so progressive in that way that I would be stoked to work. Yeah, for. dude, and I, I feel and whatever. I, you're such a positive person. I, I I feel bad being negative, although this conversation is again revealing how much negativity I have in me. I couldn't imagine someone as happy and nice as you going to a city and being like, you know, we got all these homeless people. How can we make bus stops? less attractive to homeless people so they can have shelter to sleep in. Or you know what we need to do? We need to add spikes to these benches so people can't lay out in them. Like those are real issues city planners are dealing with. And I'm like, that would just be such a downer of a day. Yeah, I kind of feel like in some shape or fashion, I kind of would have ended up in this ag realm of it. Uh, just because, yeah, I am passionate about it. But yeah, you know, I do always wonder if I did go down that path. It just always, I mean, that's the beauty of life. There's always so many paths and decisions we can make. And we all have those moments of... Yeah, right. That's the whole... <sighs> um, but yeah, somehow I feel like I, maybe I still kind of would have found this path. And of storytelling, maybe, because there is such a passion and love and intuitive relationship I have with storytelling that maybe it still would have found me and I would just would have been in a ton of debt would be the only difference <laughs> <laughs> like every other. from a degree I didn't use I don't know <laughs> yeah. 
or maybe there would be an epic city I would be designing that's like super sustainable and regenerative. Who knows? Yeah, maybe you actually would have saved the world and you've oh, cursed yeah. us all. Appreciate that. Lord. Dang. Yeah. Could have been you. You could have been the next Messiah, but never mind. <laughs> but didn't go to grad school. <laughs> but, that's yeah, funny. Exactly. USC wasn't good enough. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, did you ever, do, do you write at all? Like, do you have narratives or poems that you get into? Hmm. I do enjoy writing. I had a weird relationship with it growing up. Like in high school, I was so, I thought I was a horrible writer and I didn't, you know, growing up with immigrant parents who English wasn't their first language. Like my mom learned English with me. I wasn't raised with like big fancy words or, you know, so like, I would, I remember asking my friend to like help me with my intro paragraph to add in like some fancy words in there. It just felt like something I wasn't good at. So I had this conditioning that I wasn't a good writer. And then in college, when I got to write about topics I was really passionate about, and there wasn't such a strict structure of like MLA format, or, mm. you know, you have to write this paragraph and then this one that says this, it was just like kind of right on this topic and I completely broke that shell and I fell in love with writing and I got to I started also just writing poetry in a way that was like I would really shut my brain off and just write whatever words came to mind and I was kind of unconscious in that moment of like whatever you want to call it channeling maybe these words so when I read it over it was like the first time I was ever hearing this or reading this it was like totally Uh... foreign which is a great practice. Like that happens when you're freestyling. I don't know if you've ever tried freestyling, but I got into a phase of freestyling too in college with my friend. Dude, you Just did for... not. Sorry? You did not. Did you really? I did. Yeah. I love rapping. Stop <laughs> it. No, I have. Uh, so I told you my dad's a composer. So in fourth grade, actually it was fifth grade, we had to write an essay on, you know, an essay in fifth grade. On <laughs> I got an explorer, Leif Erickson, and I was like, dude, homie, I'm not writing an essay. I'm going to write a rap. And so I wrote a rap and my dad did the music and it was like very professional, high quality. And we recorded it in his recording studio. It was like, I honestly could have had a career in childhood educational raps, I think. No way. <laughs> I'll just send it to you. It's it's pretty fun. Dude, um, I by the way, like flocabulary, there's this pit oh. in the pendulum. Have, have you heard of flocabulary? No. Oh my god, dude. So do you know the pit in the pendulum? No. Nope. It's Edgar Allan. It's an Edgar Allan Poe story. This dude, you okay. just the narrator, you wake up and he's like in this dark room and you're trying to figure out like he's trying to figure out where he's at and why he's in there. And he almost falls in this pit and then like all of a sudden he blacks out from fear and now he's tied up and there's this, um, what's a, I guess it's a pendulum, but it's a, like a saw blade slowly coming down to like saw him in half. And then there's these rats that are like gnawing at him. It's almost like Ooh. saw, but like back in like the 1800s, but anyway, mm-hmm. vocabulary fl- made this whole rap towards it and they have like the graphics that go along with it which reminded me of your mom talking about graphic design and i'm like dude you were like 20 years ahead of your time you completely (laughs) could have made an entire career i so want you to send me this thing because i'll figure out a way to work it into the curriculum and you you will be famous in southern (laughs) delaware 
It's never too late. <laughs> what was, what's your MC name? What do you want me to address you as? Oh, I'm, well, there's two options. <laughs> the first one is Leia Slaya. Oh my dude, I was about to be Slaya Leia. Yeah. I was yeah, literally or Leia Playa. thinking that. That's awesome. <laughs> There, yeah, it's um, and you know that's the only reason to this day I remember who Leif Erikson was. He was the leader of the Vikings. V i k i n g s. Yeah, so that was that was always there, I guess the the flow the flow aspect. But yeah, so anyways, <laughs> college was like this new awakening of like, wow, I love writing, and actually, I think I'm a pretty good writer. And so that was a cool, and I wrote, because I went to a liberal arts school, so it was all reading and writing. Right. And like, wow, it, there's such a synchronicity. The more I read, the better writer I am, the better speaker I am. So I just need to keep reading books. <laughs> read your books, kids. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, now I really enjoy, I actually, what I really love is like editing writing. So like we have uh, an amazing social media lady, Robin, who I work with and she writes the posts and I'll edit them or, you know, I work with all these other writers across the country and I edit all their, their articles and kind of help even with them in terms of how to story tell these topics and kind of reorient some of the paragraphs. And yeah, it's like, I actually preferred that because I, I kind of sometimes struggle with starting it. Like I need a bunch of other resources to get inspired, but if yeah. it's already there and I could just kind of refine it and work with that, it's super fun. What's your lens like as an editor? Like and what I, camera lens do I use? No, no, as, as a, <laughs> as a writer. Very I guess, technical. Yeah, no, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be able to hang with you with that. But um, <laughs> I, I, so I teach, I'm an ELA teacher. So I get very curious when I talk to other people who get into writing about like, how they shape writing or what their style is, or if someone's trying to tell a story, whatever, like how to know, like do too wordy or here's the idea you really want to elaborate because this is the pivotal moment that deals with the conflict type shit. And I'm just curious if you have some like look fors or like, I don't know what to call it, like habits or tendencies yeah. of yours that you feel make writing good. Mm. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. So we started a series called Who Grows Your Food, which is on migrant farm workers in America. And this is like, for me, I think it's a really important series. When we're talking about regenerative agriculture, we have to confront the current exploitive system that a lot of migrant farm workers are in. Um, and so this series was is written by Leo, who herself has been undocumented for 20 plus years. So it's like her community and she can really speak to that experience through authenticity and through her connections rather than like me trying to tell that story. But she claimed she was like, I wasn't necessarily a writer before this, but I know these topics and I know these people, I know these stories. So I've really worked with her on how to tell those stories that are super sensitive and vulnerable. I mean, we changed names and locations and all that. Um, but for something that too, it was like something our audience, our community wasn't maybe so interested in because they couldn't relate. So it's like, how do you write this in a way that people can relate to and care about, you know? And so we start, we start them always with really centering the human and not even adding in that layer that they're undocumented or any of that, but first being like, 
was this lady a mother? Does she have kids? You know, something that people can like be like really connect to this person and have empathy. And then down the line, learn like more of the complexities of their story and be more open to receiving that information without maybe some preconceived um, judgment, you know, with knowing like, oh, they're a migrant farm worker. So that's been a really fascinating piece to work on and like how, how to make this thing that I think many Americans would maybe not be interested or just feel distant from, like make them want to read it and connect with it. And that's all in that method of, of setting that structure, setting that story up in a way that's relatable. So there's always something people can relate to with a human, whether it's, yeah, being a mother or growing up in a place with X, Y, you know, there's always something. And yeah, I feel like that made that piece, um, a lot more successful than maybe starting with this like tone of just like passion and anger and like, you know, fuck the system kind of tone. It's like, no, let's relate on a human level and then like bring in the other elements. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting. I, it's so funny. So my lens, not camera, but thinking lens, um, is like, (laughs) how would you explain that to a 12 year old when you're, or an 11 year old? that you're trying to help write like narratives, almost like what you're talking about with your like, the creativity you had to make an rap essay, a like rock (laughs) opera of Leif Erikson, so fucking amazing. And you try to take these really complex qualities of writing and help young kids just play around with them. Mm. And I I like that, the fact that, dude, if you're gonna start a story, immediately you wanna think, can my audience relate to the central character because mm-hmm. if they do they're in because they want to mm-hmm. then see the character through the conflict through the story they want to understand because they connect and that's it actually takes me back to when you were talking about um all these trips and going around not speaking the language but like mm. establishing trust and there are so many it seems like they're like a smile is a smile right mm. and like there are these bonds or these connections between humans that we don't even have to speak about, but that can be established. Mm -hmm. And I guess in writing, you would have to speak about them because you're writing. (laughs) But but like doing that, that's like a very simple, but ingenious way to tell someone to be like, dude, I don't know, just make your character likable. Do something Mm -hmm. to have your character be related to. Like, okay, and then get to their issues or then introduce the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, for in that context of that piece, that was like, I feel the only way for it to be somewhat like successful, or that's a weird word for that, but yeah, just people reading it. (laughs) Impactful, engaging, right? Like, not triggering. Like, it's so weird. We were having a talk this morning with, um, a lady I work with um, about military and how like even being pro-military has become polarizing and like you Mm. get associated with typically like pro-military. Now you're like a MAGA guy. And it's like, I don't know if I have to be a MAGA guy to appreciate people like stopping their lives and fighting for freedom, you know, and like even Mm -hmm. trying to like step up in social class because the military can help a lot of people to save money and to get out of bad situations. And it's kind of sad that all the nuance has been lost based around just the word like military. And I think that Mm -hmm. can happen sometimes when you're trying to tell a story is you don't know if 
certain words will automatically like trigger or become divisive. Mm -hmm. Especially nowadays. I mean, yeah, that's a huge thing with social media, especially with people just being so vocal and anyone can comment on anything. Um, yeah, we, I've gotten super sensitive to wording and even the order of words and just like, how would someone from this lived experience feel about this word or this sentence? You know, it's, we have to think nowadays, and I think it is important to really think through different perspectives, not just our own of the impact of what we're saying and how we're saying it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then there's also a point of like, it gets a bit too, either way on the spectrum is not good, right? Like my mom always is teaching me, find the middle path of balance. Yeah. <laughs> we can't get too obsessive on either way and too militant or too um, not sensitive either to yeah. stuff. But. For me, it really screws me up because I become so self-conscious, I'll lose my thought or my point. Mm, and I'll worry okay. about like not being malicious and it wasn't like a malicious or offendful or what would like a, a bad point. It was just like a genuine thought or an interest, okay. like, a, like a pure curiosity, almost like childlike. And then it's okay. like, wait, I'm four words in and I'm worried that I didn't use the proper adjective at this moment. And that's where my mind goes versus completing the thought. And mm -hmm. it's so disruptive. It's, um, I don't know. It's just like, it's the opposite of flow state. It's like Indiana Jones. Again, this will be a reference that you probably don't get because you live life and I just watch. But like, I don't know. I'm, I just don't know pop culture in general. So it's just, it's a thing about me. Everyone knows. Yeah. Like Indiana Jones is trying to get over to the, um, the, like Jesus's original cup to have everlasting life with the Nazis and his dad, Sean Connery. But there are all these letters engraved. And if you step on the wrong letter while you're spelling this word, you fall to your death. And it's like, you have to be so conscious about the next step going to the correct letter. If not, it's your doom. And it kind of sucks um, that like social media and sometimes as you try to build brands and get messages out there, that you that it can be like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I think, yeah, I try to just first like get in that state of flow and just write top of mind and maybe it's like too poetic or too whatever. And then after I'll go through and like go through that editing process and flip out words and, you know, do what, what's right. But yeah, initially <laughs> yeah. I need to just like allow anything to come through to come through and know it's like, it's not permanent stitched in paper. It's not a typewriter. Like I can yeah. edit, delete, go back. Um, but podcasts too are like that too, I feel, with just like especially the spoken word and this yeah. thing that's recorded in one moment in time where like we can you can ask me the same questions and like even a month from now I might have totally different answers and different perspectives. Right. And it feels like this finite thing of like, I want to just announce like my ideas are shifting and my life experiences are changing <laughs> and my words and all that. Like, yeah, it just feels so finite when we like record mm. something that's like for right now, but it could still be listened to 10 years from now. It's interesting. The podcast realm too. I mean, how do you feel about it? Um, I, I think I'm naive 
because I think I'm somewhat pure of heart. I don't know if like, I know we're all sinful creatures as well. So it's like contradictory to say, but I, I don't think I speak of anything with like pure malice. I tend to approach conversations with like an openness to understand. So mm-hmm. if I speak about something in some sort of stupid ass way, I'm usually really receptive to being like, yeah, that was dumb of me to think, or, oh, this is why I was dumb to think that way. Mm. If that makes sense. So I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't tend to fear it because I, but again, like I'm, I'm, I don't know, you're the 196th guest. I don't know if this will be like a super huge podcast career of mine, but I've done it 196 times. I don't know how many times right. you've been recorded. So it's a different, mm-hmm. it's a definitely a different mindset for someone like you who, I'm just, have you been on any other podcasts or done any other like public stuff? A few, like not a lot though. Yeah, gotcha. not a lot, but um, more like public speaking is, but podcasts maybe like three. So yeah. New to the game. New to the game. (laughs) Do you feel that way with like photography? When you take a picture of somebody, do you feel like you're framing them for forever? Or do you feel like you're just framing that moment? Yeah, I feel it's, hmm. I'm trying to think of stuff like from the past and how I think about it now. I mean, like from an editing perspective, I'll look at my stuff. I edited like even just, five years ago I'm like oh my god I can't believe that was so contrasty and saturated like what was I think my eye has just developed so much or in such a evolved in such a way it's fascinating to see that progression just in something as simple as how I'm editing a photo and color correcting but in terms of actual the photography and the subject like with farmers I feel like I'm documenting this moment in time like we're kind of creating a living documentation of farmers and and for like this era, what's happening now, even though they can still be timeless photos, I guess, but it's known that it was like from, you know, 2023 or whatever year. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I think of like a photographer I really admire is Edward S. Curtis. He was the first to really document Native American tribes across the U.S. Beautiful photos. And the importance of that work that he did and that documentation for those tribes, because, you know, there was massive genocide and a lot of those cultures have, um, well, a lot of their practices and rituals were not allowed for years. And he was, you know, having someone document that for, you know, now to know at that moment in time how, what was important and and how they lived um, is super important, documenting a moment in time, you know, even though it's still timeless and we're still you know, appreciating those photos today. But yeah, it seems to correlate with with time. But then I look at other stuff like more artsy photography because I like to shoot women in nature and like get really artsy and creative too. It's not all just documentary style. I shoot people too and headshots and stuff (laughs) or weddings even. And um, that stuff feels, yeah, I I guess it is always interpreted in the sense of time and place because it usually means something because of like what's the current state of affairs or the current thing we're going through right now where that photo actually makes sense or it's as powerful because it's saying a message about something that's happening right now yeah so then is it the interpretation 
because people get to look at a photo and create a narrative from the photo. But mm -hmm. when you have words, the narrative's there for you and there's tone with it and there's word choice with it. So does that make the word part feel more like lasting or more stick to you versus a photo of, yeah, dude, I don't have spaghetti stains on my tank top anymore. That was me in fourth grade. <laughs> kind of a thing. Like, no, I'm not a sloppy person anymore. I, I don't just put my hair up in a bun. You know, like I'm trying to think of like stupid pictures that you could take that you just accept were a moment. Yeah. And not you. Mm. Well, I like to, when I, I've been challenging myself in the past, I'd say year with really writing in a way that's provoking developmental thinking. Hmm. So instead of being like, this is my opinion and this is my statement and kind of this tone that like, you should believe this. <laughs> I'm really trying to re reorient how I write. That is a bit more thought provoking to the reader. So I, and I kind of, I think with photography too, that's, that's the beauty of this open interpretation. It's like, you can probably sense maybe what the photographer's intention or like why they did it this way or took this photo but it's still i can still decide for myself what that means to me and i think with writing too it's powerful if we set it up in a way that's like really question like deep questioning like i'm trying to get more better with how i ask questions because i think that's so powerful um so i'm working with we have a program Rainer studio that works with food business leaders and really shifting their thinking to be more living systems thinking so how they're incorporating these principles of regeneration in their entire business structure not just like oh i'm sourcing you know i'm buying regenerative produce to sell but it's like are your employees being treated well like all aspects of your business and so through that i've been kind of a participant in that luckily and learning under the work of carol sanford who's this amazing elder and she's all around this notion of really instilling this like critical developmental thinking. So people are, we're building the capacity in people to think for themselves. So how can we write in a way, how can we storytell in a way that's provoking people to really think for themselves and build their capacity to understand this thing or, or learn from it in their own way, rather than just like handing it to them, you know? Is it coming across less like, uh, is, is pious the right word or like a know-it-all <laughs> to make it more simple? I'm curious about like uh, some specifics and the shifts in the writing. Again, just to geek out so I can pass this along. Basically, mm -hmm. I'm trying to use you right now as like a graduate <laughs> level course to help. I didn't expect kids. to go on this podcast to talk, give writing advice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. But if you don't mind, like I think that's, but what you're talking about, I think is really deep and reflective and is a better value or purpose of writing because you don't want to turn people off. Ultimately, writing should make people come to realizations. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, why I'm curious about like the shift in your technique. Yeah, I think there's an art and I, I feel like it's a constant muscle I'm practicing because it's like a frame of thought I need to be in and aware of when I'm writing. I could easily like not you know, write without thinking that way. And then I'm just like, oh, wait, I missed the mark. I have to go back and like redo that in a way that's actually uh, 
getting to the the outcome I want for the reader, which is really that notion that I keep mentioning of this like capacity building. Yeah, reflection. Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot like that. I would that. need to like reflect more yeah. on. I never think about my process. I kind of just do it. So yeah, maybe I'll I'll see if I have any like specific resources or things I've written down. I have a lot of notes for inspo of like just examples. That's kind of how I work of like, I need to see other examples as a framework then that I can apply it right. to, you know, what I'm writing about or, or working on. So I have a lot of those kind of frameworks I feel, but yeah. yeah. Dude, I, I'll tell you something I've noticed in the youth, um, and maybe it's just a whatever Southern Delaware shift, but kids are awesome at identifying. It's hard for them to put it in their own practice. And I don't know how much of that is cognitive. Like at 14, how deep can you really get into things? You're mm-hmm. kind of like emotional and like immature still, and you're dealing with hormones. But if you gave them like a before and after of whatever writing you're talking about, this example... And you're like, hey, how did her tone shift to make the reader more reflective? Uh, I I would uh assume like they'd be like, oh, well, when she changed this sentence about, uh, for example, cows, she changed the wording here to this. And that would make, and they're so metacognitive with like explaining impact. They're so aware. And like that actually would be kind of interesting not to have you like email me your whole life, but like a before and after would be kind of neat to be like, dude, like, what do we think of this change in writing? Do we think it's more or less effective in trying to get the audience to understand or be persuaded? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That would be a cool practice and just see examples of like, when you write it this way, how do you feel versus when you yeah. write it and read it this way? And just like personally from a reader. So it's like, yeah, something that's shifted in my writing and, you know, I write mainly within the, like, food system space, but is like, that notion that we're not responsible for providing the solution or having the answer that, in my case, will, like, fix the food system or whatever you're writing about. But we do have the responsibility for encouraging people's participation and responsibility in the solutions. So really giving them a sense of enablement. And so when I'm writing, I'm thinking, is this feel, is this providing people with enough, like, the right question or sense of enablement so they can then like do something or be inspired to act or, or change how they're thinking. So like one question I've been kind of really vibing with for our work at farmers footprint of, um, to really, you know, engage people and have it be like, no, this relates to, if you eat food, which is everyone, like this (laughs) relates to you. Regenerative, (laughs) you should care about regenerative agriculture. So the question is, what needs to change in your life to embody and participate in regeneration? Mm. And that immediately puts it into the reader's responsibility of like, oh, there is something I need to change potentially in my life to participate in this thing. Like the question is setting you up to already say like you, you have a role in this, you know, what's the potential to shift in your life to, to fully engage So. Yeah, it's just little it's, things like that that have been so mind-blowing and so fun to explore of like, ooh, how to ask this question or how to set up that sentence. So it's enabling people to engage and reflect deeper and really pause and think, like, disrupt. I think it's important to disrupt our assumptions uh, and the lenses that we're missing so people can think for themselves and can ask more questions. Yeah, it's 
it can be very rare at this point where like, and I don't know, I, I want to say the number five for some reason, like there's only five different types of stories kind of a thing. And it's like, we're so inundated with content that it's tough to hit people with something that they've not come across before. Mm -hmm. Whether that's even like a question or a thought or a consideration to be like, oh, well, maybe. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Um, is, is there, this is completely like out of left field thing. Is there an aspect, I feel like we focused a lot on farming photography and um, a little bit about school and definitely a lot about writing. Um, is there an <laughs> aspect of you that we didn't get into? It's so like braggadocious to ask someone to be like, hey man, what's something about you that we didn't talk about yet that you want to? But like, is there some part of you that like interest, whatever, that um, we haven't gotten into that you wanted to talk about a little bit or share? Oh, there's a few things that I'm that are like bubbling. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, depends how much time we have. Because <laughs> there's a shorter one, which is like surfing. I'm really passionate about surfing in the ocean. But uh, there's not, I mean, it, I, it's just beauty in learning something. I learned later in life when I was like after I graduated college, my early 20s. And to just learn something brand new and just fail so many times in this kind of adult age is so humbling. And I just encourage everyone to not be afraid to try something new that, you know, you will probably fail at for some time and just working through that fear and confronting that is, has been such an amazing experience and contribution to my life. You know, I feel like at this older age, we're used to just like being good at certain things that we've been practicing or honing in on for years. And to just bring in that, like, that other angle of something that we fail at often is refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think we kind of lose that? Like children like can pee themselves and they don't care, right? Like they fart in class and you laugh and go like, could you imagine if you farted in the middle of a meeting at 32 and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I'm, we're just going to keep going. Like it's normal. We'll giggle real quick and move on. Like probably not going to happen, but like kids have that like that, like failure doesn't bother them. Do you have any mm -hmm. like theories or do you have any realizations about why, like how to overcome that or how to hold on to the fact that not to be bothered by failure? Mm, I think it's digging into the question of what are you actually in fear of with the failure? Is it around mm. your identity and people will perceive you differently? So then that goes to like your self worth and do you not trust yourself and who you are? If You know, it's like, yeah. Where's that actually originating from that fear? Because they say fear, F-E-A-R, is false evidence appearing real. Hmm. And I love that because it is that <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I, that's what I love about children is that just like they're so open and fearless and like learn. I was just talking about this with my stepdad. He's like, you know, I'm really proud of you for taking up surfing in your 20s because that's something when you're like 12, it would be so much easier, kind of like learning a language. Right? It's so much easier when you're younger. But when we're older, we're, we just have all these inhibitions. And if we can't do it right the first time, like forget about it. But know that that's actually the most important part of that process is like how you respond when you've failed or fallen or, you know, and that's your true character that shines in those moments when you're on the floor or, 
yeah. the bottom of the wave under the water. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking seashells, yeah. seashells in your teeth from just mistiming something. Was it? Mar- I, oh yeah, go on. No, I was just gonna ask. Was it Morocco and the photo shoot that got you into it, or were you trying before you went out there? No, I started surfing before that. Um, but yeah, that where I lived is one of the longest waves in Africa. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. It was like out though. And it was like two hours to buy spinach or two hours to a gas station. Like we were <laughs> in this little surf town where everyone just fish, either you're a fisherman or a surfer. So it was cool to live in a place that is so kind of remote and secluded and everyone there has some correlation to the ocean and you just feel the energy shift in the town based on the wave so like Hmm. there's like all this energy and excitement when there's swell and people are out surfing and then when it's calm it's like the whole town is just quiet and chill and it like has such an ebb and flow that's so codependent with the ocean that's really cool to slow down and live at that pace but um yeah I think one other thing with surfing is that I don't have, I'm not this like researcher type, you know, (laughs) I'm not like, I'm not going to Google or watch YouTube videos on like how to catch the perfect barrel, how to like walk to the nose. I kind of feel I, and I, with photography too, like I've never really like had the interest to really learn like all the settings on my camera. I'm not so technical in that way. I have this kind of resistance almost to speeding up my learning process you know, through these like hacks and stuff. Not that they're all hacks. I think they're great. And I admire people who actually take the time and research because they like, I would be a lot better at all the things I probably do if I had that will to sit down and like nerd out and research this stuff. But I think what I've come to realize, and I don't know, I'm still evolving this thought or this validation for kind of why I am a slow learner, I guess It's because I really like to just experience by doing Mm. and like, I need to like fail to like learn and I need to just experience it to really understand it rather than just watching it or reading about it or listening to it, you know? Uh, So I'm so feeling and somatic oriented. So I'm like, maybe I'm just going at the natural pace of nature pre-technology when we actually spent like many years slowly learning something you know rather than the speedy faster way with like quickly googling or youtubing or hacking something i don't know i'm still thinking on that but there's a beauty to that right like that's the live in the woods like what you were describing with the surf town like live in Mm -hmm. the woods slow down connect with nature get a sense versus top five ways to get your toes to the end of the board and you're like hey guys are you like and you're like hey bras i'd make fun of my daughter all the time i'm just like hey guys it's your girl shiloh gonna totally tell you how to get the perfect eyeliner today and like she's not even like into makeup like that but i'll like i i guess i say it to help her realize like dude please don't be like that like Play play around with it on your own and discover what you like. Don't try to conform to someone else's tutorial. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know why yeah. that resonates with me. If I, I I feel like it. Hopefully, if I meditate more, that'll like 
like double down. Cause I feel like that's one of my core values is like, find you don't replicate others. Mm-hmm. And I like, I, yeah. so like what you're saying is the whole replication of now you're worried about doing it the way someone else did versus in that moment, feeling whatever's there. And it sounds so woo woo, but like feeling what's there because something in you is meant to learn at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, right. like, and like, why go back to something else versus just figure it out, rely on yourself. I think that's beautiful mm-hmm. that you, that you approach life that way. Thank you. I've been kind of, <laughs> I don't know. There are moments I'm like, I should just freaking read the manual. But then I'm like, <laughs> you know, I always figure it out at the end of the day. I might just take a little longer than the other person who read the manual. <laughs> But it's my process and I'm owning that. I'm like, you know what? I'm okay going slower because I don't feel like I'm actually, I quote when I say slower because what is time and what is slow and fast. (laughs) But um, yeah, I'm like, no, it's okay. It's okay to take 10 years to just get somewhat comfortable surfing a longboard. I don't need to be rushing to the nose already. And yeah, or with, yeah, the camera stuff too. I'm just, very slowly learning as I go. And yeah, I think there's beauty in that process of taking time to really like work hard at something on your own and just have that victory then when you do achieve it of like, wow, that took me freaking 20 years and I did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude, there's this really cool ownership or like it, it's just so much, I, I don't know, so much more fulfilling to be like, it, what's the word auto, autodactic, autodidactic? Uh-huh. where you're like teaching yourself and it th- th- there's this bravado <laughs> to that to be like oh my god where'd you go to grad school like school of hard knocks bitch type thing <laughs> you know like yeah it was me I figured it out uh-huh yeah and uh- I think where what gets in the way of that is yeah when I just see other people maybe who like started something the same time as me yeah. like my my friend Rollin he started surfing like just two years ago, I think. And he's like crushing it. I'm like, what? And there's also just like natural ability maybe there and <laughs> skill or something. But I'm like, you know what? Once you start comparing, that's where I need yeah. to catch myself and be like, no, it's okay that you, you're taking longer. Like, And with school and educating children too, I think that's important to instill that of we're always like in this competitive and like, especially with social media, as we keep talking about, like all this exposure of these perfect situations and things, but how much are we sharing about the process and, and, you know, yeah. Dude. Yeah. That's another thing that, um, I, I forget when I heard it, but comparison being the theft, the thief of joy, Mm. like that's one of those, like, wait, was that Aristotle? Was that Socrates? Like who made that meme? (laughs) Cause like, that's wise as all get out when it's like, why do you care what other people are doing? Like be about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Not like how you're doing compared to someone else. Mm-hmm. You really can suck yeah. the joy out of it. Um, so surf wise, I feel I, I live by the coast, but I don't know if we get true surfer waves. People surf out here, but we have like a pretty shallow shelf so we're more like a wakeboarding or um skimboarding place where like people Mm -hmm. i guess the way the waves crash it's better for skimboarding there's not this long break i'm curious about the impact 
any other impacts on surfing on your life and philosophy? Like how has it changed you or helped you to evolve? Mm, I think that really, I don't know. I, I'm just so connected to water. Like I feel the most beautiful in water. I feel like my day has officially started, even if it's a shower or a bath, like something (laughs) with me and water is a thing. And then adding like surfing where I'm physically moving my body. Like I'm a very, you know, I grew up doing yoga and swimming and I was always so physical. So having that physical element in water has just been like, I've realized I really need these practices in nature before or after at the end of my day. Cause I'm on my computer so much editing and, you know, all the computer stuff we all do these days with work yeah. that I, to reground, if I can be in a body of, um, yeah, uh, ocean body of water or in nature to some capacity, it's like, it's so essential for my well being and my mood. And when I'm like, why am I feeling agitated or off? It's like, Oh, I haven't been in the water or surf or been outside you know so it definitely (laughs) helps me like bring in nature more into my life through this sport that's so fun um and then yeah I think it's just facing the fear like I've I'm facing my fear every time I'm out there the waves feel like they're 10 times bigger than they are in my head (laughs) and I but I think it's like I mentioned such a healthy practice to confront that and like completely surrender to it and just start slowly building that trust a little bit of more trust every time I'm out there and that translates into life for sure you know but yeah I was I was about to ask for your best wife out but I want to go way more positive what was like (laughs) a moment like what was a conquest moment where you like felt that fear but you were like you know what man fuck it I'm gonna go after it and you nailed it do you have yeah Yeah, I mean, probably, I would say still to this day, maybe I went down with uh, my partner to Baja. We live close to the border here. So we just go to Baja for a weekend for a surf trip, get some tacos kind of thing. And it was a bigger day in a spot I've never surfed before with like rocks. It's just for me, I was like, you know, a bit out of my comfort zone. And, and he was frothing. <laughs> and yeah, I was like, man, if I just catch one wave, I'll be happy and probably go in after. <laughs> but I just need one. <laughs> and the waves were coming. I'm like, oh, man, these are big. Like, I don't know if I'll make it. And I just like went for it. And I remember that feeling of just totally like riding it in the right spot and finishing and feeling just like safe and good and yeah, that was just a really courageous moment. Cause I know once I, once I like pass that barrier of what's holding me back, it will just open up the whole world where I'm more comfortable now. And, and Greg got good advice. He's like, yeah, every time I go, I try to do like slow. Okay. This year I'll do like one foot bigger wave. Just like each year, just add one more foot. You know? okay. Um, so yeah, I would say just like that, that probably that was like one of the biggest waves I've caught and it just it was such a victory, you know, that feeling. So oh. just surrendered to the fear that I'm not actually falling. I'm still on the wave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, that's a tough concept. Understanding the size of the wave being from Delaware and like rocks around it. We have some jetties, but like we don't have rocks around uh-huh. it and like how long how big can you describe it a little bit oh yeah um so i mean that wave i would say i mean it was overhead above my height i'm like five seven 
Was it? I mean, it was probably like five foot. <laughs> in he, my mind, it was like is eight he, foot. Is he but... there? Is Greg there like fact checking you? Be like, nah, it wasn't above your head. It was no, before. he's not because he's uh, in the mental wise on a surf trip getting like 10 foot waves. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's not here. But no, it was it was above my head. So it was like six foot. Yeah. Um, and it was cold. The water was cold. It was, I don't remember, maybe it was kind of like fall or almost winter and so we were in thick wetsuits and there to get out it's pretty gnarly because there's no like beach you walk into there's just these big rocks that you have to like jump in from the rocks so mm-hmm. getting out too you're like getting slapped up against these rocks as the waves crash so um yeah it's always like once you're out on land is when the real victory is not even after you caught the wave because then you have to get out of the water which is a whole nother thing <laughs> in certain spots you know yeah, that's what's foreign to me because you see these videos and like I'm like, I, I don't get it. Everything here, you paddle out. I guess it's like a duck dive. I don't know if that makes me sound yeah, lame, but you like that's what under, it is. Yeah, you get under the wave and then you like try to time it and then you roll one in. But for us, at least around here, for me, my experience, it's like land's never an issue in finding. Like you don't have to go 100, 200, 300 feet out. It's like, Nah, man, you can go about 20 feet out and you're going to catch something to come back in on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it would be, I invite you to try surfing one time. Curious how you would feel out there. I don't know if I'm patient enough, man, to be honest with you. <laughs> like, that is a big part of it. Yeah, patience in early mornings. I don't know. Is that oh, the yeah. same out there? Like, patrol. Yeah, is that like just a thing with waves that you got to wake up and for east coast it's watch the sun rise yeah there's um well you know i usually start working by like nine so if i'm trying to surf before i'm up early and that's the hardest part like it's been may gray here it's just so gray this whole month and that's the hardest when you're like cozy in bed and it's gray outside and you have to put on a thick wetsuit and go in cold water and like drive it's like a whole process um but then every time every single time once you're done and out you feel amazing and you're so stoked you did it no matter what the conditions are there's something with like you know the negative ions of the ocean that just really impact our well-being and health yeah that's something i'm super grateful for having done this podcast i feel like the woo-woo-ness in me has been awoken and the whole like <laughs> grounding and appreciating nature and it's almost like a metacognition of like what you were kind of meant to experience in the world, which, and mm-hmm. like, there's some science that backs that stuff up and you're like, you know what? Okay. So I should go with that natural feeling of mine. So like when you talk about those negative ions, I'm like, oh, that's right. People have been telling me about that. That's definitely mm. a thing. I love it. I love that you're just having this podcast with called getting getting to know you pod right (laughs) nailed it (laughs) (laughs) nervous there (laughs) and yeah that you just like randomly just reached out and we didn't even talk about what we were going to talk about and it was just like i can talk about buddhism and surfing and farming and yeah i'm just grateful that have that space and like I feel I can openly talk with you and and not be judged so yeah thanks for holding that lovely uh field of openness and conversation and questions yeah no dude thank you for being willing to 
just share without it. I've had politicians on and they get weirded out. They're like, wait, so you're not going to send me a question list? And I'm like, <laughs> nah, dude, let's just figure it out. And then sometimes they'll be like, um, sorry, I'll have to reschedule. And I'm like, you are so freaking scared. Like that is not oh what God. you should be as a politician. But then you, know, you get people like you who are just like, nah, you're riding the wave of the conversation. You're like, yeah, let's just see what happens, man. And um, I, I don't know. I truly love it because you try to make it genuine and authentic. Um, and I just love understanding more about people's lives and what shapes them, man. So thank you, Leia. Leia. Le, Leia. Sorry, I was messing with you about messing up my podcast <laughs> for uh, <laughs> coming on and um, letting people get to know you, man. I, um, good luck with your photography. Um, actually, I wanted to watch my day got all screwed up. I wanted to watch the farm documentary because I was super curious when I saw it was an entire like film and it's a yeah. short film, but like. I'm excited to know more about that because that's definitely something I don't know much about at all is the whole like residual and sustainable agriculture. So I'm excited mm. that you inspired that within me. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Farmer's Footprint to watch. It's 20 minutes. So uh, even a, like, I don't know, that could be interesting with your students and then like what writing prompts come through that, like what angle resonated or do they care about we had Greg spoke at a high school recently to seniors who are about to graduate, who are in this place of considering, you know, what college and career path they want to go down. And just to see this like young hip surfer guy talk about farming to these kids, they were so engaged and intrigued and like asking questions. And he was sharing all the careers within farming that we need from storytellers to like soil bi microbiologists to, you know, business owners and all that yeah. and so it was really powerful to be in that classroom setting and and just introduce this topic of farming as a potential and, and the vast world it encapsulates and yeah the connection food has to all of us so yeah could be something there dude for <laughs> sure i i love and that's something i regret i don't know if i wasn't open to it as a teen or if it wasn't there but just like career opportunities like oh that's an option yeah. And like, until you see it, you have no idea that you might actually vibe with it. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, man. I love that. Cool. Hey, uh, did you record all this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I see like recording. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool, cool, cool. shit, forgot to push the button. Sorry. Man. <laughs> no. That right. would happen. Hey, let's just keep so. going. You're good till like three in the morning. Or well, for me. Yeah, let's do another round. <laughs> No, just dude. watching out for you watching out for you <laughs> dude no thank you um yeah it's all there um i appreciate it and uh dude it was awesome i'm so excited to just um follow your life and your path on um social media i don't know if we'll ever like cross paths in person it's happened a couple times which has been interesting yeah um, yeah but like i just like feeling like a part knowing people's journey and then seeing how they grow it's cool i yeah. think it's the teacher in me you know Totally. I'm going to go back on video to, I want to see your face to say officially bye. Cause oh. I've been talking with black screen this whole time. Yeah. Well, I was trying to save, there you go. I was trying to save whatever bandwidth yeah. to do the same thing then. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. No, well, dude, thank you so much. Dude, thank you for just, I don't know. Again, it's whatever gratitudes. The, the Buddhist thing is interesting. I also want to like really think about this meditation aspect like it's something that like, I don't know, 
like you can kind of feel within yourself that you're like, you know what, man, maybe you want to like, I don't know if it's midlife crisis ish, but like try a little something that, you know? So dude, yeah. Totally. Just try doing that, like getting familiar with that chant and then like setting kind of, if you have intentions or things, your challenges or things you want to focus on, just like, it's all about just seeing what happens and giving it a try there's like on YouTube, you can find, if you type in like Nam Myoho Renge Kyo or Soka, you'll find the chant and just like chant along to it is helpful. But yeah, I think curiosity and exploration is so powerful and beautiful to just like, yeah, if something's calling, just try it out and see if it works and yeah. nothing to lose. So happy to chat more too if you, if you have more questions about it. We can gotcha. have a call. Yeah. <laughs> Consultation, I'll hit you up. Huge thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Homeboy's been down since just about day one. If you have not already, search him up, Andre Psyche, on social media. Give my man a follow for the fuck of it. Please, almost more importantly, do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Five stars, five stars, five stars. If you have not already... Continue with your gracious clicking, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you're feeling super generous, as in that ching-ching monetary type, go to our Patreon and support the pod for as little as $2 a month. Oh yeah, and if you know anyone who'd like to be a guest on the pod, go ahead and send their contact info our way. Slide them up into my DMs. Later.